Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here. And I wanted to let you know, this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you. But you can make your own decisions. Gary to start talking about crimes, and so I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on pressing the record. <laughs> I didn't yeah, mention yeah, crime yeah. at all. Actually, that's that was true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. That's true. James said the mm-hmm. word crimes, and James I was is like, the one yeah. that brought up doing crimes. I would never talk about doing crimes. Oh, welcome to yep. it could happen here, yeah. where we never talk about right. anything illegal. Um, <laughs> with with us today is myself, Garrison. Uh, James Stout and Mia Wong. That's right. We are talking about crimes today, actually, uh, but we're not doing any crimes, uh, crucially, because we never would. Yeah, like, like for, for for example, well, actually, I don't I don't know if it's technically illegal to to, to talk about jury nullification on air. I I don't mm. I, I I know I I don't think they can stop you from saying the words. I think they can. I think I think you you don't have the right to do it, but you have the ability. I think is the way a lawyer explained it to me. But they also said, uh, I'm not your lawyer before that. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You probably said you shouldn't be describing how to do jury notification or uh, Googling it if, if that's in your future. Stay tuned for our, our upcoming episode. How to, <laughs> yeah, how to, how to nullify yourself. How to nullify your jury. jury. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How to nullify your jury. Uh, and that will be our final episode. Okay, Uh, so now we're not talking about jury duty today, Uh, we are talking about crime. The people doing the crime in this episode, shockingly, are the cops. So I want to start on October 28th, 2016. Uh, Some of you can probably cast your mind back then, the the last week of the pre-Trump era. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So inside the captain's office at the sheriff's station in Rancho San Diego, one of the most expensive zip codes in the country, Captain Marco Gamo was making a deal. Gamo, along with Giovanni Tilotta, who's a licensed San Diego gun dealer, sold a Glock handgun, an AR-15 style rifle, and a Smith & Wesson handgun to local defense attorney Vikas Bajaj inside Gamo's office. 
Gamo coordinated backdated paperwork to avoid the 10-day waiting period required by California law for handgun purchases and supplied Bajaj with misappropriated San Diego Sheriff's Department-issued ammunition. Oh, fun! <laughs> yeah, good times. <laughs> good times. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, so he's he's really thriving uh, in his side hustle here, Marco Gamo. I've used the word misappropriated because that's what the DOJ used. Uh, I'm guessing the uh, the more vernacular term would be stolen here. I think, I think he's... So when, when you say issued, is, is this ammo that like, like was supposed to be given to a cop or is this stuff they had an impound? Uh, no, I think it's supposed to be given to a cop. I think. <laughs> Hell yeah. I think he's good. I think he's gone into the armory and just grabbed a few boxes of ammo and stole them. Your cops have just turned into the Afghan army. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The ANA. They've got the uh, what's that, that guy who had the like hel- he had the like night vision on backwards or something. That was that was the Taliban guy. Um, yeah. Interestingly, what they have in the compound, Mia, is another story that maybe we should do another day. I also PRA'd that like the weapons that are impounded. Jesus Christ, they have some shit. Uh, like they have like a full auto shotgun, uh, like, huh. like a, a bunch of NFA items, and they keep them all for like lab testing in theory. Like uh-huh. so they can, so they can be like, oh well, this person was shot. What does that wound look like? Well, let's get our armory out from the fuck it and shoot some ballistics gel and see if that helps us. And um, it's, what's it's NFA, like that sorry. scene from 2008's The Dark Knight where Christian Bale as Batman. <laughs> fires a ridiculously loud gun in a sealed bunker absolutely destroying both his and alfred's hearing for the entire rest of the movie which is why they make so many bad choices fascinating yeah it's, i didn't know there was a character called alfred in batman yeah they really welched him on the names because like batman is a cool name the joker cool name do you not know no. who alfred pettyworth is <laughs> no He's the one British character in Batman. He is your culture. When people think of British people, they think of Alfred J. Pennyworth. No, my wow. culture is not a costume, Garrison. Well, so I have a bad, I have bad news. <laughs> no, they uh, disgusted that this is the, the point of reference. Not one of our many wonderful modern British role models. Alfred's was, great. I don't know what you're talking mm, about. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, okay he is a working class hero he was a he was a wait our butlers are working class right oh god Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) let's let's cut this discourse off very quickly (laughs) i would say petty bourgeois but (laughs) yeah it's kind of complicated because you're like working directly for a billionaire Uh, and you're living in the billionaire's house and you're living a very upper class life but you still are working it's kind of complicated what is your relationship to the means of production though Uh, oh this wow well, but it's all service. Sec- like I, I don't know. I feel like we have to do a divide here between, like, because I, I, like I think I think the gender division of labor between maid and butler is very important. Mm-hmm. I love that we're debating how if Alfred is based or not. Based on- yeah, yeah. So you can find Garrison on Twitter. At I write okay. All right, so okay. we've made it to paragraph two, everyone. <laughs> In February of 2019, federal agents executed a search warrant at the Rancho San Diego Sheriff Station. Later that year, they arrested Captain Marco Gamo. In 2021, Gamo pleaded guilty to trafficking over 100 guns, which were deemed unsafe for civilians. At his sentence, I shouldn't say civilians, because cops are also civilians, right? But uh, non-cops. At his sentencing, the judge said, Gamo was almost becoming a mob boss of sorts. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> what you want to strive for as a, as a sheriff's uh, captain. 
Gamo admitted to engaging in straw purchases, which is buying guns with the intent of transferring them to someone else. He also acknowledged tipping off an illegal marijuana dispensary that was about to be searched uh, in order uh, to give... Based, 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 yeah. come on. Oh, I, nothing this guy did is, in, is, is inherently wrong. Uh, it's the fact that he only did it to certain people. Um, so that was his cousin who owned the marijuana dispensary. Uh, he, he was also engaged in illegal consulting with other dispensaries, which... I don't what? fully un- Yeah, I'm guessing his consulting emerged to being like, hey, the cops are on their way tomorrow. Uh, maybe stop being a dispensary by the time they arrive. Yeah, that seems like a that 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 that, that seems like a very classic. The cops take a cut kind of yeah, arrangement yeah, that they're yeah, calling yeah. consultancy. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, a lot of the things in this GOJ thing are like uh, really fantastically phrased. So Gamo and his co-defendant uh, Wail Will Anton also helped paying clients skip the waiting list for a difficult-to-obtain concealed carry permit. As part of this scheme, Anton took a legal cash payment to a county clerk who ensured favourable treatment for his clients. Uh, Gamo might have flown a little too close to the sun with this one, but it's not actually that unusual for gun laws to have carve-outs for rich people. Um, Often those carve-outs don't involve cops stealing ammo, but it's pretty easy if you're wealthy enough to work your way around. Uh, firearms legislation, which is kind of what I want to get into today. So while Gamo did go to jail for gun trafficking and multiple other crimes he was doing, uh, the sale of so-called off-roster firearms by law enforcement officers in California is relatively common, and there's not much that's been done to prevent it since Gamo was arrested. So to understand this, I think you have to understand California's incredibly complicated firearms laws, which probably requires like an undergraduate degree but to give a brief summary california introduced its gun roster in 2001 and like many of our laws it has its roots in entrenching systemic inequalities in this case legislators were trying to ban something called a saturday night special and Uh, people know people know what that is no it's it's a small concealable affordable handgun um it's like there, there were this there was this these guns that came out in like the 80s and 90s that were like super small, very cheap, very simple, uh, very concealable. And are they also uh, shit? Well, that, that's the thing, right? So this is really fascinating. So in practice, right, the, these were at least culturally associated with like black communities, right? That that's you see them in in sometimes like certainly like it, there was a stigmatic reference to like it's disease guns that is causing violence and we're not going to fucking look at inequality at all right we're just going to ban the guns are they shit is an interesting question because california introduces legislation which said that handguns had to be drop safe so that means you can drop them and they can't go off that that is generally a desirable feature in a handgun yeah. uh, able to fire 600 rounds without uh, more than six malfunctions and have a manual safety device. Um, later on, they added another thing that would make the gun only fire when it had a magazine inserted. Uh, and the, so they, they put all these rules in place and had said manufacturers had to submit guns for testing. All the guns they were going after passed the testing. So I guess they're not as shit as, uh, hmm. as, as one, <laughs> one had suspected, uh, which is kind of like, that, that, that is the intent. Uh, they are laboring under that misapprehension, but it seems like these guns which are very cheap, uh, actually pass the testing just fine. So if you look at the California roster, so once those guns have passed that testing, right, they go on a roster. Um, and that roster, like, it's done by SKU, so like by the individual uh, code that's given to the gun. 
And you could look up the California roster. It's online still. And like, there are hundreds of cheap small handguns that are on it. Um, so they they failed in that regard. Um, but they, they created this kind of bizarre system where most manufacturers had to make a California compliant model if they wanted to sell in California, right? Because it had to have a um, this magazine disconnect, which means that the gun won't fire without the magazine in it, which is not a usual thing for semi-automatic handguns to have. Like, uh, if you are outside of California and you have like a, a normal, like a Glock, for instance, it doesn't have that, but you would need one that did in California. Um, so that means that these guns are going to have a much, much smaller economy of scale, right? They're going to be more expensive. Manufacturers also have to pay for the testing and submit three models. Uh, so what it de facto means is that fewer guns are available in California. But it doesn't really become a big issue until 2013 when the DOJ in California add a micro-stamping requirement. But they added it earlier, actually, but in 2013 they certified it was possible for micro-stamping to happen. Wait, sorry, can I ask something? But, so is, is the roster the yeah. list of guns you're allowed to buy? Yes. Okay. And if it doesn't appear on the roster, we're going to get into that. You can actually buy it, but you can't buy it new from a store. So I, you can buy it used. Uh, and there are two ways that these used handguns can enter the state, right? One of them is if you move to the state. So let's say uh, Garrison moves to uh, LA, right? And they bring with them... Horrifi- horrifying. Yeah, just to, just to, just to enjoy... If, just just like a Vulcan minigun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they bring with them an M1 Abrams tank. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's, it's it, our balloon shooting gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, everyone on the West Coast has to have one now. Um so it's actually different for rifles, sadly, but they bring with them pistols uh, and those pistols are not on the California roster. They can keep them and they can sell them right to, to a California resident. The other way that these guns can enter and be sold is cops are exempt from the roster, right? So, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say cops, I am speaking in the broadest possible terms because a variety of peace officers are exempt to include employees of the California State Horse Racing Board. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, park yeah. rangers can do this, right? I, I think it depends what you are within the park ranger, uh, within the park. And it seems to be that there is actually a list that's in the legislation, but it seems to be largely like at the discretion of the, of the gun shop, like in practice, they could get in trouble, but like, I've heard of like firefighters and EMTs being able to purchase off roster guns, which is fucking not in the yeah. legislation. Like, uh, it is also kind of funny, but like, um, in theory, it would depend on like what unit you're in, or they could contact your like park ranger office and be like, "Hey, this this girl is trying to buy a gun. Like, <laughs> does she use this at work?" Because the idea is that they would they would have the most up to date weapons to carry at work, right? Or that they could buy themselves, even though they get issued guns. So like if you, if you need a gun as a cop, you get issued a gun, right? Um, so what it means in practice is that there's a thriving market in off roster firearms, but there's also a massive price premium, right? They often sell for two or three times their MSRP, even though they're used. Um, and I did a little digging into this uh, and I looked at... Um, one particular item, which was a P365, a SIG P365, which is a fairly like, a popular pistol, right? But after 2013, California doesn't, didn't allow any new guns to be added to the roster unless they micro-stamp their bullets. Micro-stamping is a little feature where the firing pin of the gun 
stamps the casing, not the bullet, with a little tiny little tiny stamp, which is unique to the gun, right? Or it stamps it with the serial number of the gun. So in theory, this would allow you to pick up the casings at a murder scene and be like, huh, well, they were fired from this gun and this gun is registered to this person. Therefore, we got someone to talk to, right? Pick up the casings. Yeah, it, it, right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely no ways around this. Uh, Although, I mean, admittedly, admittedly, the, the one, one thing I've learned over the years is that people yeah. are really lazy when they're doing crimes. And so, so true. So true. You could be slightly mm-hmm. less lazy and get caught significantly yeah. less. It's, that is, that is, yeah, that it, is my biggest, my biggest advice to the illegalists. Literally think five minutes beforehand. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Also, uh, don't tweet your crimes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ever, <laughs> ever green statement. Yeah, yeah. It's one of our mottos here. Uh, you could also just use a revolver, I guess, and that wouldn't eject the casings. But um, the the because there are no guns. So in 2013, right, the DOJ says you are not allowed to add a gun to the roster unless it microstamps. And we, we've decided that microstamping is possible. No firearms manufacturer will make a gun that microstamps because other states will require all guns to microstamp once that technology is available. So, so by, they just don't build it? So they just don't do it, yeah. It, it is... And it's very funny. It's it's like uh, car companies just being like, "Fucking, you know what? If we put airbags in that bad boy, <laughs> they're gonna make us put airbags in all the cars." You know, th- this is a thing that I- I've run into a lot. I think is really mm. interesting, which is like, okay, the-, the specific combination of regulatory state and corporations being required to do a thing gives you a bunch of really, really weird like outcomes that are like not what you would expect when you're writing the legislation, which makes them ineffective. Like. I mean, like the most famous one is like the Clean Air Act actually worsened air quality for a huge amount of time because they put in this exception for like existing coal facilities under the assumption that people would just like, you know, build new coal facilities and thus be like and thus like have better like clean clean air technology. And no one just no one ever did. They just left these old coal facilities running or the other one. Like everyone always talks about those like those fucking like why why the giant SUVs keep getting bigger. And the reason for that is actually I mean, it kind of is sort of fascist psychosis, but like. The, the actual reason for that is Obama-era pollution controls on cars, right? Had, had these yeah. fuel emission standards. But the larger your car is, like, the worse the fuel emission standards are. So, they keep so okay, in order to get around the fuel emission <laughs> things, they just keep making just bigger cars. Make it bigger? Amazing. Yeah. And, and th- this shit just, like, I don't know. Th- this, is, this is, I think, a pretty good argument against, a, like, against a sort of regulatory state being able to contain, like, capitalism doing horrifying shit. Is like, every single time someone tries to make an air pollution thing, it just makes it worse. Yeah, they just create perverse incentives to do something which is like just stupid and polluting, as opposed to yeah, or they polluting. just don't comply. Like it was with the microscopic yeah. thing, they're just like, no, like yeah. this, like yeah. you simply will not. Yeah, the specific interaction of like people who elevate themselves, who who make it to the California legislature on one hand, and gun companies on the other hand, just leads to this complete intransigence where like anytime a law is written, it is like someone has found an end run or a loophole before it comes into practice. Do you know what won't illegally smuggle oh legally smuggle guns into California and sell them for two to three times a retail price, Mir? Is it all the firms that are uh, doing child trafficking and That's right, the Washington State Highway Patrol. Uh, we're back. Uh, and we're talking about uh, cops selling guns for a lot of money in Southern California. So, big uh, Marco Gama wasn't the only cop who chose a life of crime, as it turns out. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, because every other one did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shockingly enough, uh, th- this practice is pretty common. So, a Gardena police officer in 2021 was also convicted of making 41 illegal off-roster sales in a year. Uh, and at least six LA officers have been found to be engaged in legal firearms transfers, according to a 2021 LA Times investigation. So that, that, that's eight in a single year, if you're keeping track. And it's pretty common to see people like posting about this. Like, like uh, if if you go on to like this California Guns Forum, where people will be like, where they sell guns, right? Where they don't, you don't actually sell the guns on the internet because that's illegal. But people will post it and then say, "Meet me at this gun dealer, and we'll do the background check." Uh, and you'll see people being like, oh, like, I'm LEO. I have a friend who's LEO and, like, happened to be selling this gun new in package. I bought it to carry it on patrol, but I decided I didn't like it. You know, like, that, that's the, the-, the theoretical canard here, right? Oh, God. <laughs> okay, the thing this reminds me of specifically is, is, a, is a very, very weird use case of, like, people in Magic the Gathering tournaments where you're, you're not legally allowed to both draw and split the prize money, so you have to say this incredibly complicated series of sentences where you're like, I want to draw and then new conversation. Can we split the prize money? It's like, I have to, I have to like say this exact series of words in order to make it clear that I'm not doing exactly what I'm doing and breaking the law. Yeah. This is how the law works, right? Like it always ends up being some kind of like totemistic magic incantation that you can say. And then the thing that they're trying to fucking stop, obviously no longer applies to you and you can do what you want. Like, it, it, it's incredibly asinine. Uh, so uh, in mid twenty twenty one, I tried to. I wanted to get a sense, right? Um, when I was doing this, of how many of these off roster guns there are in California, uh, to get a sense of like exactly how much of a farce the attempt to create this roster has been. So uh, I've been going after this for a while, but in the middle of twenty twenty one, there was an assembly bill passed called Assembly Bill two six nine nine. If you're interested. And uh, the bill required the Department of Justice to send a letter to owners of off-roster weapons, which California officially calls unsafe handguns, uh, to remind the people who own them of the laws surrounding them and to whom they could transfer them, right? Uh, I first became aware of this letter because someone decided to post it online. uh, And that kind of gave me an opening where... Because I can't PRA the names of the people who own the guns, right? Or even where they live, because obviously that's protected information and it probably should be. And I don't think that information is even actually stored by the state. But I can PRA the letters they sent out. So PRA is a public records act request, right? Uh, It's what people might know as a FOIA. Uh, And so I did that and it took me more than a year and it cost me more than a hundred bucks. But eventually I managed to get the DOJ to... uh, to send me the information, which showed that at least at the time I got it, which is the middle of 2021, 4,510 firearms have been obtained uh, by the subsection of the law that allows exemptions for police officers. Uh, there are some other exemptions for like antique and collectible firearms as well. So it's not clear that all of those were cops. They also noted that it had sent 213,804 notices to the owners of off-roster weapons, uh, which... <laughs> Yeah, it suggests that like if we think of uh, that, the the roster became a serious issue in in 2013, right? So that suggested about 10,000 uh, 10, 10, weapons a year since the roster began in 2001 have entered the state that are off roster, which kind of kind of makes the point that it's it's a rather farcical attempt at gun control, right? But 
it, it still is that the the roster, which I don't think it, you know, you're fine, right? You can you can buy a very effective gun in in California, like as we have seen, like they they're very effective at killing people. But it, it does kind of make it a joke that if you have enough money or a friend who's a cop, then this doesn't apply to you, right? Then you've over two hundred thousand of these guns, which are supposed to be like banned in circulation as long as you're wealthy enough to buy them. Uh, I tried also to PRA if any of these guns have been involved in crime or murder, and they wouldn't tell me that. And <laughs> what uh, it's always worth pointing out that like the cops themselves are issued guns which are illegal for civilians to purchase, right? Or it's not possible for them to purchase them new, I should say. The, the off-roster guns are issued to the cops, right? So by definition, some of these guns have been used in the uh, accidental shooting of bystanders, uh, shooting of officers by themselves, and shooting of officers by other officers that have occurred in California since the roster began. And so the sort of by definition off-roster guns have killed some people. Um, so this isn't actually the only way that being wealthy can get you around gun laws. And I want to go a little further east for my next example. Um, I want to go, in fact, to, to a little town called Lake Arthur in New Mexico. Uh, any, if, if you guys, are you guys familiar with this part of the world? Not, well, not that specific. I've, I, 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 I lived in New Mexico very, very briefly when I was a small child, but not there, so... <laughs> so... Uh, I've been using Google Street View. That's, that's my, uh, my my dive deep. It, it appears to be the back arsehole of nowhere. Um, and in Lake Arthur, they have one cop who it turns out was a volunteer and was being paid a dollar a year. Aha. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. So this is this is where the problem starts. This guy is called William Norwood, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll issue a spoiler here that William Norwood is no longer a cop, nor does the department exist. Uh, <laughs> And that's because Norwood was running a scam that took advantage of something called LIOSA. Uh, LIOSA is the Law Enforcement Officers Safety Act. Uh, and what the Law Enforcement Officers Safety Act does is allow cops from any state in the union to conceal carry a gun in every state in the union. So this was a big hmm. deal. Yeah, I think you might be able to see where this is going. This was a big deal before the Supreme Court Bruin decision, right? The Bruin decision was the one that uh, significantly reduced the uh, impediments in between you and getting a concealed carry weapons permit. It didn't totally remove them, and it it didn't make it any less expensive, and uh, California seems to be going about trying to make it even more expensive, uh, which is is bullshit. Like, everyone should have the same rights, regardless of how wealthy they are. Uh, But... If you were covered by Leosa, right? If you're a law enforcement officer, you could conceal carry anywhere. Um, so this is very desirable for some people. And uh, one of those people is Robert Mercer. Do you guys remember Robert Mercer? No, I do not. Okay, so Mercer is a big time Donald Trump appreciator. Oh yeah, he's uh, that like super rich guy. Yeah, the, the Breitbart guy, the Cambridge yeah, Analytica yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, so, okay. Yeah, so this guy is rolling in it. Um and he yeah, he he was he actually hosted like a a, a like success party soon after the 2016 election. This this guy is definitely pivotal to the whole Trump scene, right? Like like his, his bankrolling of Breitbart of Cambridge Analytica. He, as it turns out, is also a cop in this little New Mexico town. Which is kind of weird, right? Especially when you consider mm. that 150 other people are also cops in this oh, New Mexico town. Oh, it's one of <laughs> <Yeah>. these scams. <laughs> yep. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's one cop for every 2.9 residents. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, turns out they're probably not doing much copying uh but they are doing at least a certain amount of volunteering it's it's actually unclear how much so um the uh the lake arthur treasurer was um bloomberg did some pras around this and it turns out that mercer was what's called an honorary member of of the police department but there there are no records to indicate they actually did any policing uh but nonetheless, he took advantage of Leosa, right? And, and thus carried in all 50 states. So these jurisdictions, there are several of them. Uh, another famous person who's taken advantage of this is a friend of the podcast, Stephen Seagal. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stephen Seagal, who apparently has been a volunteer cop for a very long time. And uh, like, actually was doing some copping, according to a reality TV show he made. Uh, called Steven Seagal Lawman. You know, uh, the thing about that show, right, is it's like... Are you going to come out and defend the show? Are you you pro the show? Really? Here's my thing on this show, right? Like, obviously Seagal's doing stuff that's really messed up, but it's also unclear to me how how much worse what he was doing is than the average cop. Like... Like, wow. probably what he's doing is <laughs> yeah, worse yeah. than the average cop, but I don't think it's like, like, I, I don't, I don't think it's as bad as like, a, like a Chicago special operations unit. It's wow. Like, I can't believe you just came out in defense of Steven Seagal. Being a cop specifically. He has work to do to reach like the true upper echelon of like the <laughs> I don't really know, shitty man. cops. He like. This is a man who gave his time freely to volunteer for Joe Arpaio. This level yeah. of apologism coming from you right now is is simply shocking. I I don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> this, this is Seagal apologism. Yeah. <laughs> Seagalism. Seagal, yes, Seagalism. Yeah. That yeah. is that is what I was working my way towards, but I couldn't finish it. Yeah. So thank you for <laughs> delivering the coup de grace. Yeah. Me coming out with the some cops a bastard take scab. Uh, okay, so what? What is uh, Garrison's Garrison's deceased? <laughs> they, they, they've uh, they've died. Okay, so these badge factories, like the ones in Lake Arthur, um, generally trade influence, cash, or connections for a badge and the right to carry a gun nationwide. Mercer and his son-in-law George Wells have supported the town generously, and um, so. Merce's kind of the best uh, investigated example of this, right? Because Bloomberg went after him. Um, Bloomberg a publication, not Bloomberg the dude. Uh, <laughs> he, that would be- he went down there personally to sort <laughs> this one out. Yeah. Nothing's getting he past old Bloomberg. <laughs> no, he formed an alliance with, apparently uh, at one point this, this police department did do a raid on a meth house. And I would love to see like Bloomberg forming an alliance with the meth dealers <laughs> of Lake Arthur yeah. to fucking take on uh, Mercer. So... Um, if- if Bloomberg can take on 9-11 single-handedly, surely he can bust up whatever, <laughs> whatever yeah, operations yeah, yeah. going down in New Mexico. 150 Steven Seagals. <laughs> Would you rather fight one Bloomberg-sized Steven Seagal? <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and, and don't, don't bother messaging Do not bother messaging me. I know he wasn't the mayor during 9-11. That was the joke. Don't bother messaging me. I already know. Thank you. No, no, no. Send it to at I wrote okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, Garrison's Twitter again, uh, I write a case. He also famously dropped uh, Staten Island Phil, Bloomberg. 
You guys don't know about Staten Island Phil. I have not, you? not at all. No, okay, that's it. Staten Island Phil is a groundhog. This this will be in a bastard's episode as well. So it's a second mention of Staten Island Phil for some people. Staten Island Phil is a groundhog, uh, similar to Puxatawney Phil. Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, he lives in Staten Island, so and unfortunately, Phil. yeah. Well, would we say that? Yes. This, 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 this second, second, pretty, pretty disgusting take from Mia. Anti Staten Island. <laughs> Uh, this is this is, this is uh, my this is my Mia gets canceled episode. Yeah, going back yeah, in time yeah. and getting rid of the Yankees, things of this nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Bill De Blasio dropped the groundhog on its head and it died. What? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Bill, really, Bill De Blasio wow. blames the groundhog for its reduced popularity. Everyone who's been the mayor of New York is such a it's weird a piece of type shit. of unhinged. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 it's true. It, it, yeah, Like, fucking, f- the current mayor just went on, like, TV today and talked about how he has this magic sponge that, so, 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 so <laughs> that he can wring out... <laughs> yes, so that he can absorb despair and wring the, the despair f- out. <laughs> What the fuck? Man, I I'm, I'm so sick. The, the only thing I saw out of New York was, was the whole, like, there shouldn't be any separation of church and state. That is so much funnier. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing a sham wow for sadness yeah, in New it's, York. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a place. What a, what a town. All right, so if you're wondering how much it costs for Mercer and his son-in-law to carry guns everywhere, um, they paid at least 93000 uh, to set up this uh, thing called the Southeast New Mexico Police Reserve Foundation, uh, which you know is doing the valuable work of supporting reserve cops in Southeast New Mexico um, because they are the thin blue line between us and uh, people not being able to buy concealed carry permits in all 50 states, I guess. Uh, under its bylaws, at least half the foundation's net dues were required to be paid to police departments who... Uh, whose reservists were members of the foundation. At the time of its founding, all of the members were Lake Arthur reservists. Uh, so, so, so just a good public, oh, public benefit, probably. Just money going around in circles. He also paid for Lake Arthur officers to get SWAT training in Vegas. Again, there is only one full-time cop, and he's a volunteer. So uh, th- some of the lads went to Vegas, I guess, and this was a donation that was probably tax-deductible. Um, <laughs> the way that this came out is when uh, a quote-unquote firearms expert from North, North Carolina got drunk and shot his brother-in-law in the leg. And people oh, were great. like, why were you carrying, bro? Like, you're a cop? And uh, yeah, from there, things began to unwind. A lot of the other clients for this place are people like bodyguards. Um, they they were uh, clients, cops, volunteer officers, I should say. Uh, they're people who do close protection for wealthy folks, right? Um, and carry guns as part of that work. And I'm guessing it's their employers who are making these significant donations to Lake Arthur that probably allowed these people to be reserve officers, which allowed them to carry in all 50 states, which in turn allowed them to protect these wealthy people, right? So it's another... And, like, it's important to understand that, like, New York, for instance, uh, declined before... This is before the Bruin decision, a concealed carry permit applicant from, like, an FBI informant who had taken down a biker gang. They were like, no, you don't need to carry a gun. Like, it, it was almost impossible for people, even if they were, like, helping the cops to get concealed carry permits in, in some parts of the United States. And, like, California was very hard, lots of places before Bruin. Like, 
I think, was it Nancy Pelosi had a concealed carry permit or Feinstein oh, yeah. or someone? Okay, this, this is the whole thing. Okay, so I, I, this was this was Feinstein. The, the, one of the other scams for yeah. this is uh, yeah. you can get deputized as a federal marshal. So there, there's like a bunch, like I, like Feinstein's rumored to have done. There's like a bunch of like every like a bunch of sort of like California like Congress people have done this. That like yeah. they, they they get they get deputized as marshals and so they can do this shit. Yeah, it's, incredible stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, like, so. I guess what I want to come back to is that like all of these laws, right? All of these gun control laws um, are circumventable if you have enough money, right? Yeah. So. If you want a nice brand new gun that doesn't micro stamp, it doesn't have the uh, it doesn't have the magazine disconnect, and and like modern the gu- modern carry guns especially are a lot nicer than they were in 2013, right? They're smaller, they have a higher capacity, and you can put a little red dot sight on them if you want to. And if you want one of those things, you can have it in California as long as you're rich. And if you're if you're not, then you can't. And the same applies with this 50 state carry, right? If you want to carry a gun all around the country. And even now with Bruin, um, states are not required to recognize each other's concealed carry permits, right? So I have a concealed carry permit in California. It's not recognized by any other states because California doesn't recognize any other states' carry permits. So <sighs> I can apply for one in Arizona. That costs me more money. Um, but if, if you want to carry in all 50 states, you can just make this donation to the cops, right? Um, you can... Almost all of these things, right? These, these aren't the only examples. Right? Mia cited the uh, the federal marshal thing. Another one is the NFA, right? The National Firearms Act. Yeah, Act. Um, which, like, essentially, it's not illegal to have a suppressor. It's not illegal to have a short-barreled rifle. Uh, it's not illegal to have a machine gun, actually. You just have to spend a shit ton of money to get one. Mm. Which uh, Mercer has a collection of machine guns, I guess. So all of these oh. things... Yeah, it's great. It, it's fine. It's it's great that we live in a country with with two tiers of of yeah. rights for people. Those are those those machine guns are totally going to be used for normal, completely normal things. Like <laughs> yeah, come yeah, out of yeah. the armory in twenty years. <laughs> uh. Yeah, yeah, a totally normal guy who will use them for normal stuff, and just I'm sure likes to like make holes in paper with his friends. And it's not problematic at all that like to be as rich as this guy is, you have to be a problematic dude. And maybe those are the people who shouldn't be having guns. Yeah. Uh, but instead, it's uh, it's it's going to be poor people who who can't be having guns. And like, I think, regardless of what you th- and it's perfectly reasonable to think that like there should be fewer guns in this country. Um, it's it's perfectly reasonable to believe that. And I think like it's perfectly reasonable to think like, what the fuck should we do about the fact that kids get shot in schools? Uh, that, that's not an unreasonable stance at all. But uh, if the way around it is saying well only rich people get to shoot people, then that that's not really a solution. Like. It's just yeah. kind of the the appearance of one, and I don't think any of us, certainly if we who are on the left, should should really support that. And, and yeah, that, that's where we are in California, which is great. Yay! So that's about all we've got on this. If people are interested in seeing more about uh, either the Mercer case or the public records, I have uh, we'll probably we'll put them all up on our sources page. You can find our sources page uh, on the it could happen here website. And we put all our sources up there for all our episodes. So yeah, go check that out. Uh, anything else to finish off with guys? The cops having guns, bad cops being cops, bad cops. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
What about Steven Seagal, then, Mir? This is a dramatic change of form from your earlier stance. Look, I, 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 only ever, I only your, ever your argued that he was slightly more violent than, 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 <laughs> yeah. than a normal cop. That was, that was the extent of my argument. He is only slightly more violent than a regular cop. She is flip flopping on the some some <laughs> cops about it issue again. Wow. You can send me your opinions on the police. Uh, she's on Twitter at I write okay. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here. Once again, hosted by myself, Andrew, as we talk about whatever. Today we have two special guests, Sprout and Sherry Ann from the Black Flower Collective. And they're here to talk to us about the dichotomy between urban and rural political organizing. I mean, as we can all recognize in this day and age, being politically active is incredibly important. Uh, there are a lot of vulnerabilities that we are all facing under this intersection of systems um and we are looking for ways to get out but it could be difficult to navigate especially when you don't know exactly where to begin 
that's part of the focus of my channel. And it's also something that these folks are here to talk to us about. But before we delve too deeply into the meat of that discussion, let's begin with a quick introduction. You know, who is Black Flower Collective? How did you all begin? And what are some of your goals as a group? Uh, hey, this is Sprout. And uh, we got started organizing with the Black Flower Collective through previous uh, organizing projects here in Aberdeen, Washington, such as the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network. That collective got started after the Black Lives Matter rebellion in so-called Seattle and was started by feeding the movement out there in Capitol Hill and Chaz and then brought that organizing effort to back to the community to start a food not bombs here in town. Uh, through those meetings and relationships that we formed, we got to know the local homeless in town and started getting to know their needs as we tried to fill them with our mutual aid efforts. And out of those conversations over meals, we learned that one of the biggest needs was um, some sort of home base where people like us trying to support the community could come together and cook meals together and serve them in a collective area. Yeah, having a safe place to be able to just cook food and plan other types of organizations or collectives is imperative because we face a lot of backlash from the uh, reactionary politics around our town um, being in the kind of the heart of Trump land and the type of people that show up in the uh, big city protests to mow people down with their trucks and whatnot. Right. And how has that affected your outreach efforts, would you say? Thankfully, not too harshly, but we've definitely had some scary situations. Uh, there was one uh, time at the uh, homeless camp we were told about by the campers there where somebody had tried to like run down a tent uh, that somebody was sleep uh, sleeping in and they made us like jump out at the like, you know, before they got hit and they jumped out of the truck and was like waving of a like a police baton or some sort of like a stick or, so, or so, something around threatening people. Somebody got like a bigger stick, which prompted them to get in their car and start waving, a, uh, pull out a pistol and start waving that around before they ended up driving off. Yeah. Sometimes when we get new volunteers, there can be a bit of hesitance from people to like, you know, take food or supplies because there's a bit of a, a relationship that needs forming there of trust because of those actions of right-wing right actors in town so it's kind of like you know what is why are you out here feeding so there's a bit of hesitance there but once they realize they're with our group uh, we've established enough of a reputation that that you know that name drop is usually enough to to reestablish that trust right well it's, it's good that you'll have somewhat established yourselves you know locally and builds up a reputation would you say that that has been one of your major goals as a group to build that trust in in the community and where you'll see uh, see that trust go in from where it is now. I've always seen that personally as our only asset. Uh, we don't have a lot of money. Obviously, we're not funded by anyone. So all we really have is our reputation in the in the community. And in the wider community, our reputation has led to some of that backlash that Sherry Ann was talking about. But <clears throat> within the actual unhoused community, uh, you know, we have a reputation of doing whatever we can to help people and always showing up consistently and, you know, always being willing to go the extra mile when someone needs something in crisis. 
That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So having had some experience with, um, like you mentioned, working in the various movements that were happening uh, in 2020, what would you say uh, some of the major differences that you've noticed between uh, organizing in major cities and in urban areas compared to rural political organizing? Um, well, I'd say the majority of the issues we've noticed uh, depend on the material conditions of the town that we're in. Being a small and rural area, there's a lot more poverty here. And so those material conditions lead to a lot of differences between urban and rural areas, I found. Before I come into the area, I was involved with uh, Occupy Oakland back in the day. So I had a bit more of a run-in with the larger city, larger city's way of doing things. And uh, what about you, Sherian? Well, I've grown up here in this town my whole life and haven't really left outside of it all, all too much. Um, this type of organizing is always something I heard about more so through rumors than anything else versus actually seeing people on the ground and doing things. Um, once we got our Food Not Bombs uh, chapter start, started uh, d- uh, during 2020, uh, it, it opened kind of just uh, a new a new world for not just myself, but a lot of people around here. Right. So one major difference that we've noticed that is the dichotomy of electoral politics in the town. Uh, most of the opposition that we've faced has not been from the city, but from grassroots initiatives. Uh, and so some of those people over the course of the last two years have taken positions on city council, Um, but the police that they control are still demonstrate an unwillingness to attack their own community in the way that far right politicians would want them to. Yeah. So take like uh, the police that show up and like big city protests or whatnot, they'll bring in all police stations from all surrounding areas, people who aren't familiar with the community who you know it's just a job to them which helps sever that their connection to uh that that area while here it's the same people dealing with the same people every day and it in the minds of police um it, it does cre- create like, like a sense of community in their mind that makes them a little more reluctant to use the type of violent force that we see in uh in, in, in the bigger cities and it's not to say that force isn't present and doesn't happen here but it definitely doesn't happen on, on the frequency if i could run back a second by the way this is mia I'm, I'm also on this episode um yeah if i could if i could walk back a second ask about something when when you say that most of the resistance uh to what you've been doing is from grassroots movements is that like like are, are you talking about like sort of grassroots like right-wing political movements or are you talking about sort of NGOs opposing you or no like uh we have a local grassroots right-wing initiative in town mm-hmm. that's been mm-hmm. the main brunt of our uh our little group's opposition and they have like I said they have run and won a few city council seats since then but it started as a grassroots you know clean up the trash sort of campaign mm. Yeah. Yeah, you could still find their page on Facebook. It's a uh, Save Our Aberdeen. Um, oh God. <laughs> we, save Our Aberdeen, please. Uh, soap. 
Is, and they got like little soap bubbles and whatnot, and they're here to clean up the city streets. And oh boy, I I don't think they're talking about the trash. Not trash as we would define it. Yeah. So sort of right. So th- th- this this is a place where sort of like right wing like anti homeless stuff has been has been their sort of main way to build organization. Yeah, it's a it's a huge. I mean, I don't really even know Sherry Ann. Like, what other talking points do they have? other than the homeless, everything centers around the homeless, even stuff that has to do with like businesses in town and local economics, uh, that gets blamed on the homeless, you know, everything gets blamed on the homeless. So it really all goes back to that. Yeah. They are the scapegoat for every problem that Mm -hmm. the city council faces. Um, or, or not just the city council, but businesses, you run a shitty business, it it's it's the homeless's fault i don't have customers it has nothing to do with the fact that i haven't sold anything in years and this is just a hobby shop for me because <laughs> i got a fat inheritance but yeah i'm i'm talking about you all that glitters <laughs> <laughs> oh we call the names now <laughs> so you speak you spoke about how this um this grassroots right wing movement has uh, picked up some steam and won some seats in the city council. Um, but I, one thing I recognize about grassroots movements is that they tend to have to sort of balance their goals with the uh, trust they need to build with the broader public, with the uh, perception that the public has of them and how they're trying to shape that perception. So how would you say that... Uh, the public of Aberdeen views the right-wing initiatives, the SOAP movement, as uh, you're referencing, and how do you think that they have tended to view Black Flow Collective? Well, I think a lot of people um, feel scared to voice their opinions if they're on the left in town. But we do get a lot of support for the mutual aid that we do. The uh, the base of the other the right wing movement in town is pretty strong, and you know I don't see them drawing in a whole lot of new people because of their extreme nature and their tendency towards conspiracies. But they do have quite a substantial base that whatever they say they're gonna they're gonna agree with and they're gonna uh go along with take for example like um here about a year or two ago um i think it was november of 2021 or august um there was a big uh anti-trans rally outside of a star wars shop here in town that uh yeah they had to bring in a bunch of uh, proud boys from you know out out of town and like build their numbers from outside you know, uh, with, with outside uh, uh, help and whatnot, while tr- chanting about how Antifa was coming from Seattle to burn the shop down and kill the shop owner and all this and all this stuff. They, they had the guy during the whole protest. They gave him like a, a bulletproof vest that he's like walking around. Did they brought it, it brought Matt Walsh to fucking town? It, it, it was a mess. Wow. Yeah, it's um really. A classic example of pot meat cattle with a lot of their rhetoric in my experience. Yeah. I think the majority of the public, though, 
does care about the, the issues that the homeless are facing and the, the fallout issues from that. Uh, but they kind of, it's kind of this tug back and forth between us telling them what's really going on on the streets and the stories of people down at camp and this other more right-wing tendency to just blame things on the homeless and take the simple route of saying, if we just get rid of these homeless people, then our problems will be solved. And local efforts to gentrify the area with the influx of Terry Emmert, a uh, right-wing capitalist who's bought up like 60 properties in town recently. And as well as uh, just the local media landscape in town has a right-wing tinge to it. I mean, where we're at, everything has a right-wing tinge to it. <laughs> uh, but so it's hard because there's not a lot of voices, even though there is a lot of sentiment of caring about the homeless, there's not a lot of voices that are actually telling the truth of what's going on on the, on the streets. And so when you get all the lies and bullshit coming from the police and city hall and just being reported verbatim by the papers in town, it leads to a lot of people forming conclusions based on faulty facts. And so they might think, oh, the homeless did this, the homeless did that. And we go into the comment sections every time and push back and say, you know, actually, this is what happened. And it's actually a lot of times that we get people, you know, opening their eyes and saying, oh, I didn't know that. You know, it's not always just the standard dig your heels in sort of thing that you see on social media because it is a sort of smaller town. Right. Everyone kind of knows everybody. Yeah, there's a bit more accountability in that sense. If you're going to spout off online, it's, you know, it's likely yeah, that you, all you kind of have to face the person and the grocery line yeah. afterwards <laughs> and stuff. Not only that, but it makes like for organizing in general, um, anonymity, uh, a lot different of a, um, uh, of a tactic in how you, in how you use it. Cause like say in the big city, you're constantly surrounded by um security cameras everywhere you go you're constantly being monitored watched or whatnot but it's a lot easier just disappear in the crowd just another face the you know they like you can go out spray paint ditch not a big deal in place like here in aberdeen for example they're like i could mask up and do everything um you know i can but if i get known in any kind of sense of the way if i go out and you know spray paint a wall it's like oh there goes sherry and you know spray painting walls again <laughs> yeah so, and once once you are doxxed or identified it's really hard to un undo that and just sort of re-anonymize yourself so right. we've taken an anonymity and our our security in that aspect very seriously from the get-go a couple people in our organization who didn't uh, have face, you know, public harassment and stalking. So, yeah, it wow. is a big deal. So you've managed to maintain a level of anonymity uh, despite your outreach efforts in a small town. Yes. Well, to a large degree. To a large degree. Okay. There's different people in our group. Uh, you know, it's not like our group has rules about it. So some people use their real names. Some people don't. Um, but those who are concerned about it have been able to. Although it's, it's difficult. And, you know, once that, once that identification comes, you know, it's pretty much, uh, games up. 
Right. It also right. kind of has affected our recruitment in the sense that uh, people on the outside looking in may see what we're doing as more dangerous than it actually is because of those security concerns. And they might be scared of retaliation and not want to participate because of that. So we have taken to kind of reducing the fire in our online social medias for some of that mutual aid stuff so that we don't get as much of the backlash on those accounts. And we found that it's helpful to have uh, ancillary groups that can go and do more autonomous stuff if we need stuff done that it, or said that is uh, going to create more backlash. Right. So sort of different layers of the organization. I remember the Afrofuturist Abolitionist of the Americas, uh, one of the statements they had put out, they were, um, they had used the term move like mycorrhizae in the sense of having sort of different levels of network uh, in place. You have like the above ground level of, you know, more visible uh, public face in action, whereas you have that sort of underground fungal network of anonymous and probably more risky action taking place. Yeah, because we have to sort of maintain a certain level of goodwill in town for the mutual, for certain sides of our organize, organizing. Uh, like the, the police, for example, they're always down at camp. And so having a amicable relationship with them is advantageous in certain scenarios. Um, so yeah, splitting apart roles, I would say, you know, one role being the, the public facing side of things and one role being the more private, uh, autonomous group. And how would you say you're talking about your semi-amicable relationship with the police? How has that, uh, been sort of, ex sort of set up, you know, uh, what's the basis of that? Well, as we were mentioning, the uh, the the structure of policing is a little bit different since the police in a, an area small like this is going to hire locally as opposed to in large metropolis areas. You generally see police departments in big cities hiring from the suburbs surrounding the area, right. which leads to sort of like a foreign occupation feel. Uh, that's definitely the feeling that I got when I was doing stuff in Oakland was that the Oakland police department was not made up of anyone who lived in Oakland. You know, uh, they were coming from the surrounding suburbs that were much more affluent and removed from the problems of Oakland. And they were just there to occupy by force. And so we get more like the Andy Griffith feel out here where it's like, uh, <laughs> the cops are, you know, the good guys who's trying, who's helping grandma cross the road and, you know, will, uh, you know, carry your groceries up the stairs for you and that kind of stuff. At least but, that's more the, <clears throat> at least that's more the public perception anyway. Um, right. They also, they also have a small tank and conduct all sorts of dr <laughs> drug raids and stuff like right. that. Right. There's, there's that yeah. constant dichotomy, like, yeah, we're helping you, you know, we're walking you down the road and carrying your groceries in your house for you, but then also, you but know. because of the small town aspects of it, though, um, being able to like play on their um, wanting 
you know, for the ones who do want to help but are misguided because they're cops, a cab. Um, but for the ones who are trying to help, who aren't like specifically going out trying to fuck over homeless people besides their, their jobs, you know, ones who occasionally like go out and buy stuff of their own money or whatever to like help so so whatever, they'll kind of like rely on us to deal with that side of the pop population so they don't have to waste their time dealing with the homeless is how and which is allows us to deal with more of the problems in the homeless community in-house versus having to get the police involved right because you know the police aren't really trained uh or capable of resolving those kind of issues for example like uh, my father for, for uh for example um he was in and out of prison his whole life and after I was born and he got out of prison uh, that last time, um, he had a moment where he's going to get ready to have a relapse, right? Uh, he went to his dealer's house, you know, he's there, he's, he's, he bought his eight ball, he's sitting there, you know, getting ready to do his thing and there's a knock at the door and they open it up and it's police, they're, they got a, a warrant for the dealer, they're raiding the house and this one cop, you know, pulls my dad aside because he knows if the other cop sees him, he's going to send him straight to prison. And he's like, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing here, man? And whatever possessed my dad to do it, he's like, I, I just want to go home. He put the eight ball in that dude's hand and cops kind of looked at him and was like, just just get the fuck out of here. Just go. Because he knew if the other cop, you know, saw him, he would have sent him to prison right then. Um, And the, like, and, and again, a, a, a cab, the, like, this is, you know, the best story you're ever going to hear. <laughs> it's the best yeah. story if a cop is a cop not being a cop pretty much yeah exactly uh, yeah all, every time but you definitely get more of that here though that their advantage to take over yeah and we have a certain uh <clears throat> people in our group that can liaison better than others with the police and so we've used that to our advantage as well uh they've largely ignored i want to say the police not the city the city wants to stop us uh it's like their undying wish apparently but the police have largely ignored or shown uh, tacit support for our efforts because they're members of the community and they, at least uh, the older crop of officers have been working these streets and seeing the same homeless individuals for, in some cases, longer than I've been a lot. So, you know, there are relationships there, even if, even if it's one mediated by that position of being a police officer um when you see someone struggling for that long you know it's it's hard not to be empathetic as a human and so we've been seeing a bit of a shift now that they are all those officers are starting to retire and we're getting a new crop of younger more gung-ho police because uh, who would who would volunteer who would sign up to be a police officer in 2023 you know other than right. people who have something going on with them. So we're Some seeing very a bit distinct of a politics for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for a while there, it was this, you know, that sort of old crop of police officers who had built relationships in the community and had that public image of being the helpful uh, peace officer, as it were. Which makes it hard to push back when you're when you're a group that's trying to advance, you know, uh, abolitionist thinking and anti-cop sentiments when they are beating people with batons it's easy for your community to look at that and be like okay these guys are clearly the enemy but when they're just you know 
helping grandma across the street, it's a lot harder to make those arguments. So that's been one aspect that has made things difficult for us. And another dichotomy in the just the list of these in the mirror differences between uh, the conditions around organizing in a small town rural area versus big urban cities such as say Seattle. Yeah, but despite all of their help, helpful nature, they are, they are enforcing local ordinances that criminalize the unhoused, despite the ruling out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Martin v. Boise that says it's unconstitutional to do so. So even with no alternative, no alternative shelter available this year, we have zero cold weather shelters in Aberdeen. They're still out there sweeping people and telling them, hey, you got to move along when the maps handed out by the city say specifically you can sleep here and you can camp here as long as you leave enough space for pedestrians to get by, you can set up on the sidewalks. And yet they move along every day. Yeah. As you're talking about, you know, the different dichotomies that uh, you face between urban and rural political organizing, I would imagine that uh, population is certainly uh, an issue that that you might have to face as, you know, an organization trying to make a change in a small space. Uh, Have you found it challenging to build your base and, you know, get connections and stuff going? Yeah, it, for for certain. Like as we said, there's already the issues with the of us having a more reactionary based politics in a lot of our population, and that's scaring what allies that we do have here. So it's definitely re- resulted in us having to do the best we can to uh, network outside as much as possible. Yeah, there's not a really wide base of radicals to pull from, so we have to work with a bit wider ranging group of folks out here. Although it has always shocked me how many people are willing to get involved in in radical organizing here in town. Um, you know, I think the smaller group size has led to a need for more uh, connection and more listening in our decision-making processes, which has been nice. Uh, I think we've gotten really good at operating as a small, tight-knit group, which maybe organizers in larger areas were where groups are larger, uh, have to deal with a little bit differently. You know, there's also the difference in terms of where we socialize. In places like Aberdeen, there's nothing to do in terms of uh, social gatherings. There's no uh, center of socialization in town. The only thing that we did have was the mall, which has been closed for couple of years now. So there's not a lot to do in terms of activities. And there's also just not a lot of space, like physical space in which to gather as a community. <clears throat> That's why we are currently serving our food, not bomb meals under a bridge because the city has removed all covered areas in one of the most rainy areas in the country. Yeah. Like when I go to like Seattle for, for, for example, I could walk into any business, any doorway, just about any street pole and see flyer after flyer after flyer for this event, this concert, this group's doing this, uh, this got this, these classes are taking place, et cetera. They straight up have a law against putting anything on the 
polls in in town versus let alone there actually being any events happening worth using the polls in the first place right right so i would imagine that part of your aims as a collective would be to find ways to bring the community together through uh those sorts of social events informal and formal for sure and that's definitely a big part of our goal with uh the black flower project is to create a sort of social center um a place for the community to come for various reasons and you know experience whatever they might discover so it sounds like you'll have a, a good lay of the land in terms of what is happening in the town and what sort of movements you want to be making uh in the next part of this episode uh you can join myself and mia and sherianne and sprout as we discuss the actions that Blackfall Collective plans on taking in their community and what sort of material conditions uh, they've continued to have to navigate in this space. Until then, um, I'm Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore St. Drew uh, and support on patreon.com slash St. And you could also check out Blackflower Collective and support their work. Yeah, you can find us at linktree backslash blackflower llc or blackflowercollective.noblogs.org you can also find our content at at linktree backslash al1312 where you can find our podcast maltov now and a bunch of our other projects by sabo media thanks a lot guys Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here. Joining me again for this second part of a two-parter are Sherry Ann and Sprout from the Black Flower Collective in Aberdeen, Washington, as they've joined us to discuss the dichotomy between urban and rural political organizing. Last we spoke, they gave us some background on exactly how the Black Flower Collective began and what sort of motivating factors they have been in their development as an organization, as well as some of the dichotomies that they've uh, experienced between urban and rural political organizing. Now we're going to take a moment to explore some of the material, some of the other material conditions that they have faced uh, in their city or rather in their small town. Sherry As we were talking about in the last episode, there's a huge difference between the modes of socialization um, in big cities and then versus small towns like our own. You know, here we socialize more like in our houses. You meet friends at at the homes of other friends' houses where in the in, you know bigger cities, it's more so that, you know, you, you went to a club, you went to an event, concert, class, what what have you um and these are definitely things that have like evolved and developed based on the uh, you know just different material conditions Uh, like you know there's not as many classes around here and you know events and stuff like that because a people just don't have the money to go to them and b there's nobody has the money to really put them on or you know, any of that's a startup capital. Uh, there's not enough money coming through the town. That's why the, the far right are always trying to push this homeless narrative because they're trying to make like turn this town into like a tourist town or something, which makes no goddamn sense to me. There's nothing in this town to come here for. Yes. <laughs> but like the only reason you're coming to this town is because you're driving through here to go to the ocean. That's it. Like the highway dumps out here and then it's old highways back to the rest of the ocean. Sounds pretty isolated. It it can be pretty isolating out here, um, but it doesn't disconnect us from the overall struggle. Uh, Throughout our organizing, we've discovered that there's a lot of things that we can do for urban comrades through our mutual aid. Uh, For example, rural people can do anything that is virtual, such as graphic design or web support. Uh, We can also offer up rural spaces for rest and recuperation for frontline activists in urban areas. Uh, While we may not be present in the heat of battle, we can make our isolation a strength as often 
people abused directly by the system require peace and solitude to recover from such trauma. Uh, that makes we sense. can also use our local networks to, to identify enemies and report this to the wider radical community. Out here, there is a huge number of, uh, out here and in the Pacific Northwest in general, there's a huge number of white supremacist and neo-Nazi militias and uh, organizations. And so they generally organize in small towns like Aberdeen. You see a lot of that here. And so people living in those towns bear the responsibility, we think, of uh, reporting on the activities of those groups to the wider community. Because a lot of times what you see is, you know, it's kind of like the police coming in from the suburbs. The extremists often come in from the outlying rural areas, either in protest scenarios or, uh, you know, usually in protest scenarios. We saw a couple instances in which our local right-wing neo-Nazi group uh, went out to Chaz and was filming videos out there and uh, collecting information for their organizing back here. So we can also be doing the same throughout the interim and collecting information on those groups for our comrades in urban areas. Right, right. That sounds like some really viable and potent ways to, to build that sense of urban-rural solidarity. Yeah, yeah. Um, because there's definitely a lot of uh, uh, people out here that need um, so some notes ta taken on them. Um, for example, during the height of the uh, 2020 protests, um, there was a small solidarity protest um, that was essentially just five women that, you know, holding a couple signs and which resulted in a line of reactionaries and their assault rifles, the, you know, the harassing and threatening this very small group of women of, you know, if, if the, it's saying how Antifa was coming to the town and they were going to burn the town down and all this stuff. Um, you got people like in uh, in Walla Walla, for example, you have uh, Henry Contrera, who um, utilizes what uh, uh, connections and whatnot that, that he has out there to like call other white supremacists um, around the nation and essentially be like, hey, you know, move here. We'll get you a job. We'll get you a house. We'll get you all set up. Just come here and organize with us. And we kind of have our own version of that here in uh Aberdeen with uh, Cash McCollum, a uh, the leader of the uh, Pacific Northwest Wolf Pack, our local neo-Nazi group, and people like that. I think it's not just them; it's a whole group that that uh, they're a whole social setting that uh, follows them. And us being in rural communities are going to have the best opportunity to keep tabs on that kind of stuff and warn the wider community. Right. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely vital. And, you know, one of my questions that I'd prepared uh, in coming to meet with, with you all, uh, I was going to ask actually, you know, how can we avoid uh, this sort of idea that a lot of people have in their heads, all radicals have in their heads, uh, the, sort of the distant commune trap, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, radicals, they move out to the country, they set up their happy little commune, it either falls apart, turns into a cult, or just like, pulls away from the broader struggle. But it seems like in some ways, uh, y'all have been able to utilize that distance as a sort of a strength. Um, and you've spoken quite a bit about how rural communities, different ways they've been able to help uh, urban communities in 
the broader struggle. Uh, but now I just want to turn the turn the tables a bit and ask uh, what sort of ways urban radicals can support uh, the struggles within rural communities? Well, one way that we've seen a lot of solidarity from urban comrades has been in the topic of harm reduction. Uh, it's really hard to access services out here where we're at. Uh, there's really only one player in town and they are highly bureaucratic and the line to get any sort of social service from them is a mile long. So also, fun can, notes, uh, that Cash McCollum person I talked about earlier is on the board for the, that social service as well, as long as as well as other people who are part of the SOAP group. Yeah, so we've seen a large um, show of solidarity from urban comrades sending us harm reduction supplies such as Narcan which has literally saved dozens of lives since we started that program. Healthcare in general is a, is a tough issue for rural areas. Uh, transportation distances, lack of providers, lack of services, all of those things compound to make it really difficult to get uh, appropriate healthcare. And so anytime anyone has any actual injury in town, they just send them to Seattle and right? our hospitals out here are really terrible. And so um, training, I think, would be a really vital need that we could benefit from a lot out here. If we could get these sort of medical collectives and the harm reduction collectives that exist in these more urban areas to conduct rural training workshops, I think that that would be a huge benefit to you know, not only just Aberdeen, but any rural area that that was to take place in, because that would allow those communities to start employing harm reduction and general first aid in their communities and prevent transportation out to these more metro areas. Yeah, the more we could do skill shares, the more we could do workshops, the more we could do radical classes or anything under the idea of kind of unschooling um, that we could do for rural communities is in, imperative because the, the outside of high school, unless you're going to college for something specific, there's just not much for learning out here. What about the next generation? What about that uh, site of struggle in education? Well, I, I believe Sprout could probably uh, delve into this a bit more, but I definitely would say that our ideas for you know, education is in the next generation as much as everything kind of goes under this. Uh, I, I forget um, the name of it, but it's this idea of the like uh, seven years generation um, in, in our planning and the like, what what would this look like for the next uh, next seven generations? Right. Seven generations, sustainability or seven generation stewardship is another term used. I think education uh, is central to a community. It's really the same sort of, you know, you're going to get the same answer with all of these healthcare, addiction, poverty. They're all interrelated out here. And because education is so crucial, we have focused the Black Flower Collectives initiatives on a lot of educational programs. So we're trying to get this space set up so that we can start having some uh, revolutionary coursework that we can offer there. We would really like to develop it into a real campus for learning um, 
both for uh, youth programs and for like continuing education, uh, GED and college level kind of stuff. We think that the unschooling method is pretty cool, um, where people can kind of just pace their own learning and decide what it is they want to learn. Uh, so that's the method that we would go with. And we think that that allows for a lot more diversity in the styles of learning that are employed. And through that, you can kind of learn, you can kind of learn new ways of learning, I guess, um, which helps add resilience to any community. And I think that a lot of those skills offered at a place like that like like Sherry I was saying skillshares I think a lot of that could come from will need to come from urban communities because we don't have a lot of that out here of our own right so hopefully right. when we get our when we get our space set up we can host all manner of gatherings and start bridging that divide between the rural and the urban yeah and I mean I've been learning more about your space uh did a bit of research on it um you know prior to the episode when we stood first started talking very inspiring stuff, very much in the vein of something that I plan on doing uh, locally here in Trinidad and Tobago. Let's pretend that this is uh, let's pretend this is a revolutionary version of Shark Tank, right? Like, let's just pretend this is an anarchist Shark Tank. Uh, give me your, your, your elevator pitch for this space. Like, what is the plan there? Okay, our plan is twofold. The property would be divided into two separate sections. The public facing section would be dedicated to the social center we've been speaking of and the rest of the property would be what we're calling an eco village where residents would live uh, the social center will be where we centralize community resources and the self-governed eco village would have immediate access to those shared resources uh, the plan is to run the social center as a bit of a small business incubator for various community initiatives that we've been talking about and as well for the residents of the eco village to start their own small personal businesses because uh in our discussions with people on the streets you know everyone has a, an idea of how to make money and it's just always some small uh barrier like paperwork or permits that gets in the way of them starting to to have their own income and that sense of independence. Uh, so we wanna be able to help with that. Uh, it would also obviously be a central hub for preparing and serving food, which has been the basis of all of our organizing so far is the coming together and sharing of meals. Uh, we wanna have an internet cafeteria and a community kitchen there. Uh, we would also host hold space for the mutual aid network to store supplies and conduct its work both on and off-site. Uh, we want to have enough space to have a meeting hall for uh, potential unions and start pushing on the unionization locally with the IWW. All of these spaces would be rentable to the public. So the union hall, for example, would be a great venue for an event that someone wanted to throw or perhaps a wedding even. And so that could be one source of revenue for the social center, as well as the bookkeeping, the backend bookkeeping services that we're gonna have as part of the business incubator and the permaculture design services that we're gonna have as part of the eco-village. 
It really sounds like a lot of the different ideas that I've had converging on my channel for some time now. You know, this idea of a sort of a library economy, you know, this idea of the eco-villages, the sort of permaculture spaces and moods and centers of community outreach and education. I'd be lying if I uh, didn't say, say that, uh, that we're, we're a huge fan of your channel, actually. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. And I'm honestly, uh, in turn, this project is something that really inspires me as well. And, yeah, you know, I'd like to say that none of this is from us. We've taken so much inspiration from other projects uh, to cobble together this plan um, that, yeah, it's been a real joy to to just go through all of everyone else's different content and kind of see like, oh, this could fit with that and this could fit with that and come up with a plan that we really think could start to solve some of these issues that we're seeing in town. Right. I think that's the real... One of the few beauties of the internet these days, you know, the fact that it's still able to connect people and ideas uh, from all over the place. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask, as you mentioned, these sort of eco-villages and that, that, that whole idea, uh, having spaces for housing um, and benefiting the people in that community, developing that sort of sense of interdependence. Uh, I wanted to... You know, you can't really talk about urban and rural, rural and urban without bringing up the fact that urbanization, you know, seems to ever crawl into the rural space. You know, like there's always this sense of the encroachment of the city on the surrounding rural regions. Um, what, are your, what, what is your take on that? Uh, yeah, it does seem to be a one-way street. I think the uh, model that we're trying to push is one of degrowth, where you would see sort of a, a reversal of that trend of gentrification or urbanization. And you would see more of uh, like a ruralizing of urban spaces to start uh, having more green spaces, more growing of their own food, um, and more production of agricultural products right there in the urban centers. Right. You know, which is kind of what we want to do with the eco village is provide a bit of a model for how uh, a community organizing uh, of how a community could organize itself around ecological principles. Prefigurative politics in action. Exactly. Another note uh, that I guess I want to bring up before we start to come to the clues uh, is, you know, again, we've been speaking a lot about the urban and the rural. But one element, uh, except in a, you know, sort of a passing sense of our discussion of the police, one element that's kind of been lost in that and that I know people might be asking about is what about the suburbs? You know, like, do you see a space for organizing there? Um, where does that fit into that urban-rural dichotomy? Um, what sort of focuses do you think suburban organizers might want to tackle? Well, I think... Uh, suburban comrades are probably going to uh, have a bit of both worlds, as it were, because they're not in the downtown core of a city where most protests or sites of struggle happen. But they're also not out in the boonies uh, in a rural environment. So, you know, they might have police that are a bit more preoccupied with the actual community and actually from the community, 
And so they might need to take some lessons from the rural center or from the rural areas in that regard and try to diversify their group into multiple different roles, multiple different channels so that they aren't having continuous backlash against a group that's just trying to feed the homeless. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they have a lot of resources that rural people don't have access to. And so they could be coming into rural areas and providing those same sort of trainings and workshops that urban comrades could. And they could also be going into urban centers and learning and providing workshops and skill shares in those scenarios. I think they're kind of a, maybe play a bit of a, a buffer zone between the two. So what is the future look like for Black Flower Collective? You know, what projects are you planning on tackling in the here now, a couple months from now, a few years down the line? And how can folks support? Well, right now we are definitely focused on securing funding. Um, the housing market is horrible. Property price, prices are going up. And when there is a good deal on something, it, it's gone usually within a day, within hours. Uh, so we are de definitely full focus on fundraising right now. We need to have the money on hand to be able to jump on a piece of property when it comes up because we need a good deal and we need a good amount of land to make sure that we have the room to grow and build various projects in the future. Uh, yeah, so the projects that we're focusing on right now immediately is the um, permaculture design services. And so if anyone wants to have us design their farm or garden or house or balcony, um, they can go to blackflowerpermaculture.noblogs.org and uh, get started through that process there. Um, hopefully, once we get land, as you're saying, in the next five years, the, the permaculture design services can grow into a, a permaculture design course that we could actually start offering people to come and do like a two week intensive study on the building techniques that we're using on site in the eco village and on how to apply those back at home. Um, another project that we're currently working on is the bookkeeping. Uh, this is sort of the bedrock of the business admin side of things that we're going to be folding into the business incubator once we get that going. Um, and we are looking into a couple different grants for that. But as Sherry Ann said, you know, right now we're focused on fundraising. So we are, we do have a couple different platforms that we're collecting donations from, and we are starting to plan a few uh, benefit shows here locally in Aberdeen. So if anyone is in a band and wants to roll through and, and play a show for us, you know, that would be much appreciated. And they can, they can just get a hold of us through our website. So our role in Black Flower is trying to spread awareness, help with this fundraising, give them kind of free advertisement uh, in, in order to help their growth. Um, Mean Sprout and our podcast Molotov now are from the Sabo Media Collective, which once things are going with good with Black Flower, we're hoping to be housed by them to help uh, grow our media efforts. 
But uh, if another good way to help in supporting Black Flower is to go go to our website at sabo s a b o t media um, dot noblogs dot org and share our podcast Molotov Now. Check us out on social media on whatever social media you f- uh, are on from Collectiva Mastodon to f- Facebook at Aberdeen Local thirteen twelve. Uh, we have articles that we write on the Harbor Rat Report and a whole host of other content uh, for people to check out and share with donation links that all go to Black Flower's efforts. That's fantastic. Uh, and I would encourage folks to check out what they're doing uh, and all these different platforms. And well, that's been it for It Could Happen Here. It's been great to have you both from Black Flower Collective. Uh, I've been your host for... Today, Andrew of the YouTube channel, Andrewism, which you can follow uh, youtube.com slash Andrewism on Twitter at, at underscore St. Drew and on patreon.com slash St. Drew. All power to all the people. Glad to have you all. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being on. Thank you, guys. Great recording with you. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ah, that's my getting absolutely screwed over by the medical establishment voice. Woo! <laughs> People thought it was another sheep podcast. They were briefly and extremely excited. <laughs> nope. The sheep, the sheep podcast will... Uh, mm. mm-hmm. I, I, I make no promises about the sheep podcast. <laughs> Were we going to tell them about the lost sheep episode? No. No. Okay. We'll try. We'll just leave that one. Yeah. This is this this is it could happen here. The podcast where uh you you would think that the medical issue is a trans thing and it's absolutely not and it's amazing and I love it. Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's the podcast where I complain about medical issues and talk about other stuff. Uh, with Ooh. me is James. Yeah. Uh, I'm a person who complains about medical issues and sometimes Ooh. goes to Mexico to buy drugs. So. Yay! Legal drugs, medical drugs. (laughs) 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 While we're while we're being recorded. The thing is, is making me think of is I was in. Oh God, I don't remember where in Mexico I was. Um, I was not very old, but so Mm. we took we took a ferry, and it was I got like so seasick. It was like the most seasick I've ever been. So we had to like go back. And, um, we, so I, at this, my, my Spanish is not great at this time. My Spanish was much worse than it is now. Um, and we have to, we go to this drugstore and we're trying to find something that's like an anti seasickness drug. And we buy this drug called Vomicin and we're looking through the, the, the thing. We find the part where it says side effects. And I remember, and I look at this and I, and I read it and it says hallucinaciones. And I'm like, Oh no. And, <laughs> It's like, oh god! It, it, it wound up actually it was completely fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not vomit over the rails again. No, I meant hydrogen on, on the ferry ride back. I have a good, uh, I have a good inadvertent medicine hallucinogen story, and then we can we can actually do the podcast. Right. When I was when I was a bit younger, I was climbing a mountain in Morocco and um, became like extremely altitude sick. Like my fucking nose was just like unleashing my blood. Like oh, it, no. it was a real moment. Um, yeah, I bet I look great. And uh, so I, I tried to get some medicine. We went somewhere and like, you know, I, I speak French, but most of the people spoke Berber and, and, and it wasn't a language that I speak at all. Uh, anyway, I received some medicine, which I took uh, in, in the form of, I think like a powder that I mixed with honey. And I was like, okay, this is unique and different, whatever. Fuck <laughs> me, did I have some incredible dreams. <laughs> Uh, I just kept taking it because I was unwell. It was definitely opium. Was the, the thing I was taking was like I bought it down and was like, "Yeah, this stuff just really helps out my altitude sickness." <laughs> One of the adults I was with was like, "Ah." <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, don't do drugs, kids. Speaking of not doing drugs, okay. So what we we are here today to talk about democracy, the opium of the masses. Yeah. So. This this script was originally written in a period where I had spent an enormous amount of time 
being forced to watch documentaries about what democracy was. <laughs> and my conclusion from all of this is that the history of democracy begins with a mistranslation. <laughs> okay. So, okay, what, 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 what does that mean? The answer is that, okay, the, the, whenever someone starts talking about democracy, the first thing they do is they go like, I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to start by translating the word democracy. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. The, the, the most common translation that you'll see this like, like everywhere from like Astra Taylor's like documentary, what is democracy to just like the thing that's on Wikipedia holds that democracy is derived from two Greek words, right? You have demos meaning the people and kratos meaning rule. So you put these two together, you get demos kratos, you get democracy. I, my Greek, I, I can't pronounce Greek very well. It's fine. Whatever. It's, this is ancient Greek. Um, yeah, but you know, this, this means rule by the people. So, okay, th th this translation has several advantages, right? Foremost among them, it is simple enough to be taught to a school to school children and catchy enough that there's a non-zero chance that like the most pedantic of them will remember it after like the day after the test, <laughs> which presumably is the explanation for why this is the, this is the translation of democracy. It opens every single fucking thing people write about democracy. Unfortunately, unfortunately for our beleaguered grade school teachers and, and sort, of, sort of the broader populace as a whole, this translation is so blatantly wrong that I have been forced to start a thing about democracy and also about rioting, yelling about ancient Greek. So <laughs> great. OK, so what 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 is the actual issue here? Um, the, the, the actual problem is the mistranslation of Kratos in particular is incredibly important both conceptually and ideologically and the actual sort of proper translation and the, the implications of this are worth examining in some detail so the anthropologist david graber who we have mentioned a lot on this show mm -hmm. wrote in in his regrettably very poorly read essay there never was a west he uh, describes kratos thus quote in this this in turn might help explain the term democracy itself which appears to have been coined as something of a slur by its elitist opponents. It literally means the force, or even violence, of the people. Kratos, not arkos, the ancient Greek word for ruler, also the root of anarchism, or without arkos. Yeah. So uh, what, what, yeah. what he's, yeah, so what he's saying there... Wasn't Kratos a dude? Like, he, he's uh, uh, no, he, a dude, uh, uh, I've undersold him, an, an immortal... Dude. Uh, yeah, he's also he's the, the the main character of the God of War games. <laughs> okay, that, that is the thing I so, did not know. And hilariously, that that is like him him being the main character of the God of War games. That is actually a better way to understand what Kratos is than the rule <laughs> by thing that everyone usually translates this at. Because like like ancient Greek has a perfectly good word for like rule by right. It's arkos. It's the root of anarchism. It's yeah. like an anarchos. It's the but it's, it's a word. It's like. The, the the normal thing where you have a Greek derived word where you want to say rule by is that is is arcos right yeah but like democracy is not that right yeah like oligarchy is like that but like like democracy is yeah. specifically kratos and th this is because what democracy literally means is rule by the violence of the people based yeah well and this you know okay so like this 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 like. This sounds like I am essentially pearl clutching about translations, but the context here is actually important, right? As as Graeber points out, 
the sort of, you know, Athens, which is the exemplar society against which the original anti-democratic philosophers rail. By the way, this is like Plato, et cetera, et cetera, hates democracy. Uh, most of the people who you read from sort of classical Greek, like, yeah, philosophy d- despise democracy, even though they live in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge, you know, like, not, 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 not to like whitewash Athenian society, but like these people are like Sparta apologists and it's like, yeah. We haven't really, it's funny that people have definitely, I don't know if they've actually recovered Plato or read Plato or they just uh, get mad when Donald Trump doesn't win elections. But like this whole like, this whole like benevolent philosopher king shit has definitely, uh, definitely made a comeback in recent years. And it's troubling. Yeah. And, and I think, I think part of this, this is, this is another complaint that I've had about sort of like the, the, the way that like the sort of like great authors thing is taught in 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 universities is they deliberately like there is like an in in, in 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 what in what specific readings they assign there is like an incredible intellectual effort that goes into making sure you never see the absolutely deranged shit that these people believe like plato yes. plato literally worships angular momentum uh, <laughs> yeah. like that is his god is angular momentum um like he 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 he, he, he's, he hates democracy he loves like Spartan, like oligarchy, basically, like all, all of this stuff is like that's like stuff that like you don't read when, yeah, when yeah. you get a side Plato. It's like yeah, and there's, there's a huge like um as someone who's taught like a ton of universities, there's there's this huge fucking impediment to you assigning that stuff. Like I've specifically tried to to assign different stuff in these like writing courses, which which end up being like great white dudes of history, right? Like um that like if you can assign different things but like the cost of of assigning those and that that cost isn't borne by you or the university right it's borne by your students it is massive like even if like for a while there like we would just write like a, a lot of text you know if you take the time as a professor to, to label out the text you can take it to a print shop get them to photocopy it uh and almost inevitably you need to find someone who's willing to kind of play fast and loose with copyright but still, it will end up costing your students so much more than yep. the, the texts which are in the, the book that you can fucking auto-generate the quizzes because the book also has a website and, and you still get paid like you're doing a job when you're not. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, bad. Yeah. And, and, and this stuff has had, you know, like this has had sort of profound ideological influences. It's had, you know, it's, it's had sort of profound... It's had profound influences on like the I mean just sort of the, the the way that like ancient Greece and Rome are like conceptualized. And 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 I and I think this also really has uh you know, it has an it, it makes it very hard to see what was sort of actually going on in, in a place like Athens. And, you know, a great Graeber sort of points this out, right? Like Athens is a sort of like exemplar uh like you know, sort of it's a, it's a sort of exemplar like it is literally like the place for which like like most descriptions of sort of democracy are 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 sort of originally about and athens you know we 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 are trained to think of athens as like oh it's like well athens this is like the first democracy or whatever this is like actually this is actually like a very normal sort of society and it's not this is a this is an extremely weird society yeah. and what 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 Graeber sort of points out about this right is you know the thing that that is you know Okay, so like th- there have been lots of societies over sort of the the course of human like the, the, you know hundreds of thousands of years of the sort of like course of human history, right? That have had collaborative decision making systems. What is very very weird and almost unique about Athens is it has two things put together. It has a decision making apparatus where people have equal say, 
And it also has a violent enforcement mechanism to impose the will of the people on other people. And as you know, as we'll get to in a second, uh, also impose the will of those people on other people. M- most society, yeah, that 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 turns out to be a very important part of sort of the yeah. Athenian Empire, et cetera, et cetera. And like who the people are. Yeah, this is this is not yeah. all the people. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that in a second too. Nice. But so so most societies, Graeber argues, either have one or the other of you know having a, having like a, a decision making apparatus for people of equal say. And a violent enforcement mechanism, right? You have a lot of societies with collective decision-making apparatuses that involve the entire community. But the thing is, the, these these processes invariably sort of like develop some kind of consensus process as a sort of expedient to keep the community from just tearing itself apart through constant conflict, right? Because like, okay, it, like if if you can't actually – without the threat of force, right? You can't actually have a society where – you constantly have really, really controversial decisions being made by like 51-49 splits where both sides absolutely hate each other and one side is imposed over the other, right? In, in order to sort of like keep your like, you know, your like city or your state together, right? You have to actually create political solutions that, that, that you know, people, people not, not that they necessarily like fully agree with, but that they're willing to live with. And, you know, this generates sort of like various so increasingly elaborate, sometimes not very elaborate, but, you know, various sort of forms of consensus processes. On the other hand, you have societies with extremely violent enforcement mechanisms, but these societies are almost always incredibly hierarchical and they're ruled either by sort of monarchs or oligarchs who just simply do not care about the notion that, like, people should rule themselves or that, you know, other like other, other people who are not like the king or the body of oligarchs should have like anything even remotely to do with making decisions. And that that's what makes Athens really weird, right? Is that Athens has both of these things. It has a sort of it has like a, a a violent it has a way of like imposing decisions on people through violence and also it has this principle that like people should be able to make decisions for themselves collectively by you know like through 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 a sort of process that doesn't involve them all being ruled by just like some guy and you know what what makes athens and the other and the other sort of greek democracies because there are, there are other democracies in greece over the sort of period that this goes on what what makes them unique is that like the people quote unquote is composed largely of soldiers as graeber puts it in other words if a man is armed then one pretty much has to take his opinion into account one can see how this works in its starkest in Xenophon's Anabasis. I, I, I've been, I have now been told by several dictionary sites that this is in fact how you pronounce it. I don't know. Anabasis sounds terrible to me, but mm-hmm. it, such is the will of, 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 I don't know, dictionaries. Which tells the story of a Greek army of mercenaries who suddenly find themselves leaderless and lost in the middle of Persia. They elect new officers and then hold a collective vote to decide what to do next. In a case like this, even if the vote was actually 60-40, everyone could see the balance of forces and what would happen if things actually came to blows. Every vote was, in a real sense, a conquest. So what, what we're dealing with here, right, in the, this, this, is, this is sort of what democracy is in, in its very rawest form, is you are dealing with a group of very heavily armed men who need to find a way to convince slightly more than half of the group to agree to help them impose their rule on everyone else. Do you know what uh, will 
get you uh, do you do you do you know who will fail to pay your mercenary contract leaving you stranded in the middle of a persian civil war which you have backed the wrong side vladimir putin yeah don't take mercenary contracts on vladimir putin and we're back so you know as as i was sort of saying like what we're dealing with here right we we have a group of a very heavily armed men and they 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 need they need to find a way to make a, a, you know they need to find a way to make like half of like slightly more than half of the group agree with them to impose their sort of rule on everyone else so in, in, in slightly more technical terms right athenian you know athenian democracy or, or democracy in the athenian sense is, is composed of two co-determining elements fused together there is a decision-making apparatus and an enforcement mechanism the two are co-determining because the structure of the enforcement mechanism which is 51 blokes with sticks beating 49 blokes with sticks over the head also determines the structure of the decision-making apparatus, which no longer needs to concern itself with the opinion of everyone in the group as they would in a society without the ability to sort of employ violence to enforce decisions, as long as they have enough people to sort of militarily defeat a minority of the group, right? You know, and you could could see how the the structure, how how the enforcement mechanism is is the thing that is structuring what the decision-making process has to look like, right? It's the thing that sort of sets its limits, and this is something that it turns out is very, very sort of important in what a democracy is. The, the enforcement mechanism, too, is also determined by, by the sort of decision-making apparatus because the people here are armed soldiers. So the, the, the 51% that becomes the sort of like basis of, 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 the, of democratic majority rule, you know, it literally composes the enforcement mechanism itself. And this sort of double co-determination is the origin of majority rule democracy, right? The institution that, you know, in various forms, and we will get into this, like this has gotten increasingly less and less quote-unquote democratic over time. But this this specific form is the thing that has come to sort of define what democracy is. If we look at what democracy is as a political project, though, right – what we see is that the essence of democracy itself is to transform the majority from a simple count of military strength into a, into a signal of morality, right? The citizens of democracies, and even, even a lot of people who are either not citizens of a democracy and live in it, or who don't live in a democracy, simply believe that it is the moral right for a majority of people to be able to impose their will on a minority. This is this is just this you know this 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 is what this is what forms a kind of democratic common sense right it it is the thing that everyone believes that is sort of the basis of everything about how a democracy functions right and you know democracy is almost never framed this way explicitly except by you know every once in a while you'll get someone who makes this argument who is like I don't know they're a billionaire or they're like you know I uh, what's his name I I. Yeah, Hayek will, will yeah. like like if you press him, or like Milton Friedman for to also will, like if you press him, will make this argument right, which is like no one actually wants to live in a democracy because you know like if he you know if 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 we actually live in a democracy, everyone will just like increase our tax rate or like marginalized groups will like. These are critiques made of the United States as well, and it's, yeah. it's like earliest inception, right? Yeah, and, you know, I know what's his name. I think it was, I think it was John Adams. Did, so some of the early founders, like very explicitly, this was their argument against, like, made, made very explicit anti-democratic arguments against giving anyone who didn't have property the vote, which was like, I think the the exact line was, if you give people the vote, the first thing they will do is uh, erase the debts and redistribute the land. 
Yeah, which hey, there was I a wish. whole ass rebellion about this, right? Like, yeah, end. yeah, I wish yeah. it would have been based. Uh, good yeah, program, yeah. usually. Kind of mm-hmm. kind of messed up in the US where you have to ask where that land comes from. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Yeah, but like, like you, this, this is an argument you really only ever hear from people who have a, like the only minority that makes this argument are people who have a shit ton of property who are like, oh, God. And, you know, and, and their, their <laughs> thing here is, well, OK, we, we need to make the system less democratic so that people can't take our property away. Yeah, or give property rights. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, their reason for sort of pointing out that this is what democracy is in theory is really sort of cynical and like reactionary. But. The thing that the, the reason this argument works, well, quote unquote works with sort of like, you know, with, with sort of libertarians is that this equation of of sort of numerical superiority with the moral right to exercise power is like the key underlying assumption of democracy. It, it is the idea without which democracy simply ceases to function. Right. But but this is something that, you know, people don't talk about democracy like this. Right. The, the the sort of trick of of the democratic system is to ma- is to push the enforcement mechanism into the background, right? When 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 you talk about democracy with like regular people, the thing that they well, because normally they think about voting, right? But you know, any any kind of thing that is like a collective like decision making process, right? A regular person is going to call democracy, and you know, there if that's kind of true, but but you know, if but if 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 you want to sort of get like technical about it, it's not and. There's an there's an incredibly large ideological apparatus that's specifically built up around making sure that people don't look at the way that the that the enforcement mechanism is is as much, if not more so, a, a sort of key element of what of what democracy is than the part where you know where everyone comes together and make it makes a decision that everyone talks about all the time. I was watching an interview with Graeber the other day. That's such other things I do in my free time, and uh, he was talking about uh, like democratic confederalism in in uh, northeast Syria, right? And he talked about it as like democracy without the state, which I think is interesting. Like it's him using that vernacular kind yeah, of he, definition. So, so okay, so like I, I th- I'm, I'm I'm taking a lot of the arguments from stuff Graeber wrote, but he he backs mm-hmm. away from the implications of his own argument, right? Yeah, so, and, and goes back yeah. to. Albeit, yeah. like caveating, there were, there, and I guess it's worth noting that there are a ton of of like hugely divergent, like we're not uh, like prisoners of etymology, right? Like, like the, yeah, it, the meaning, like I think it's Rosa Luxemburg who said government is uh, politics in the people's interest or something. <laughs> it's kind of bullshit, tanky interpretation of of like yeah. what most people would see it as. To, like, there well, are these broad definitions, you know, and, and and I think this is something that like like Asher Taylor's documentary, right? Like. You know, the part about that's good, right? It's like you know, there, there's—I forget who says it. But there's this like kind of famous political line that's like, I if 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 if, if there if there is a thing that everyone agrees is good, no one will agree on what it is, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and, and this is something that like you know, you, you, like I, I think I, I think it's it speaks to the power. I think it speaks specifically to the power of the sort of like like the idea that more people be like agreeing with something. Like gives gives legitimacy gives legitimacy to that thing, which is that like every like like even societies that are like not even like really remotely democratic, right? We'll pretend that they're still democracies, right? Like the Bathists have elections yeah. every sort of like yeah. cycle, <laughs> like right? Like, yeah, I mean, like like you know, this this is a thing I, I think isn't very well understood, but like yeah. like th- this this was also a thing. In, like for example, China has this like okay. 
Sorry, I, 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 as, as, as I'm preparing to explain this, I'm realizing that the China, like the, 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 the like Chinese government experts are going to get mad at me because I'm, I think, I think I'm about to confuse the United, the United Front with the United Front Works Department. But so China, China, like technically speaking, is there are like other parties technically that are kind of oh, remnants wow. from, like. You know, for like for example, like the 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 left faction of the KMT, which is like the Chinese Nationalist Party, right? There's there's like yeah. technically a faction of them that's part of this thing called like the United Front. And there's like technically other parties, and they have like this like consultative role. It's, it's 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 an incredibly convoluted and elaborate system. But you know, like that whole thing, and, and you 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 can find you know like the, the Chinese system is like not it's not democratic in the sense of like you can like vote for someone. Or like, like, okay, like it's not democratic in the sense of you can make a vote that will make a thing happen, right? You know, and, and to be fair, the U.S. is also not democratic in the sense of you can <laughs> cast a vote and make a thing happen, right? But yeah. th- this is sort of like, you know, okay, like it, it is, it is a, it is a society that is is less democratic than the U.S., which is sort of astounding, considering the U.S. like doesn't even have one person one vote, right? And we'll we'll get into like republics a bit in a second, but like you know, e- like Chinese, like quote-unquote democracy is like not it has very little to do with like the the, the principle of like the moat like 51 percent of the population votes for a thing and it happens right but but you know like if, if, if you if you look if you look at the sort of rhetoric that you that you see from or in, in the internal justification of like like you know you, you you sort of like read chinese bureaucratic documents or you read sort of like the, their pr stuff like they constantly talk about like yeah we're going to make a more democratic society because like that legitimacy the, like the idea of democracy is really incredibly powerful and enduring and it's something that like even like you know st- like i mean like i don't know like the saudis don't pretend to be a democracy really but like like most of the other like gulf monarchies have like electiony things right like it, it's 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 an idea that is that is enduring and powerful enough that even people who don't agree with it are forced to sort of like do this pageantry of it and i i i I think that's really interesting and i and i i think it explains a lot of the kind of i mean especially around occupy but i think it explains a lot of the kind of political movements that we've been seeing over the last about 15 years which is I th- I think this is also an explanation for why why we see so many riots as as a form of sort as as a form of politics, and why you get these demands that are sort of like I don't know you you like in the 2011 revolutions and you, you sort of also see this now you get a lot of sort of very abstract calls for democracy while also doing things that like are quote unquote not legitimate in a democratic society like for example like rioting is is not supposed to be sort of like a legitimate political action in, in a society because you know like there's this whole like a, a because there, there, there's a system under which violence is supposed to be administered administered right like you have a state the state is the thing that's supposed to do violence if anyone else does it outside of that they're like you know they're an illegitimate extremist but okay if if, if we go back to our sort of base definition of what democracy is right Democracy is a collective decision-making apparatus and an enforcement mechanism. And it's like, well, what is a riot, right? A riot is both of those things happening at the same time. There are a bunch of people collectively making a decision and then imposing that decision immediately. Yeah. Is it E.P. Thompson who called the Luddites collective bargaining by riot? Like, <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's often like referenced now and other stuff. Like, uh, like people talk about like uh, 
you know, like your hair, your hair that you used all the time. I think the the origin of it is, um, or is it Eric Hobsbawm? Could be Hobsbawm. Uh, anyway, yeah, famously the Luddites were called collective bargaining by riot. Yeah, I, I think. Well, I, 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 I think there is something sort of interesting there about collective bargaining by sort of physical force. You know, it's like the, the decision-making apparatus is happening outside of the sort of normal bounds in which the decision-making apparatus is supposed to happen. And yeah, I, I think, I think there's, there's a sort of, this is, a, there's another, I forget exactly which Graeber thing this is from, but the, you know, the, there's Graeber, this might actually, this might actually be from Zessic about Batman, which is pretty funny. Um, what's his, but, uh, what's his take on Alfred's class status? Man? I don't think he, unfortunately, I think that's, I think that's the one thing he doesn't mention. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure there's no Alfred discourse in it. There's lots of other discourse. He calls uh, coward. Uh, is it Bane? No, he calls the Joker. He calls one of the Batman villains a Zerzanite, which I think is very funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, okay, he 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 has this argument about sort of like, okay, how do you you know? So so the 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 other part of democracy is it's is is the part about the people, right? And this is always a thing that's that's very much in contention. Like, how do you determine what the people, quote unquote, are? And, you know, the, the structure of Athenian society is, is very much determined by who is and isn't included in the people, right? Like, you know, women can't vote. If you're a slave, you also can't vote. There are lots of people who are directly under Athenian rule who can't vote and are, you know, not part of the people and therefore are sort of like – and and this, this this is in some sense the origin of like the, sort of the trajectory democracy goes on, right, which is that – it, it, it the trajectory it, it goes through is republicanism because you know like the 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 the, the founders of the U.S. right if, if you look at the, sort of that style of, of fifty of fifty plus one style majority democracy right those guys you know as we talked about like they didn't want a democracy because they thought in a democracy people would vote against their sort of like aristocratic interests yeah and so the what they decide on in yeah, like, like, yeah, it's like, okay, well, all these people own slaves, all these people own a bunch of land, all these people, like, I don't know, are, like, bankers and shit. And they're like, okay, so it's, it's going to be a bad idea if we let people, like, decide what to do with our stuff. So instead, you know, they, they, they go to this Republican structure, and the Republican structure is, I think, very interesting because it, it takes the 50 plus 1 structure, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, it abstracts it to the point where, like, the, like, your, like your vote for the most part, basically simply does not matter. Like every once in a while, like a local election, it can do something, but you know, like what's actually happening, right. Is, is you are like, you, you, you are selecting who is going to rule you. And you know, the other part of this is that the enforcement mechanism becomes autonomous from the people itself. Because, you know, unlike, unlike an Athenian thing where like everyone's either like on a ship because they're like a, a they're, you know, they're part of the navy, or they like, you know, they can go strap on their fucking shield and like plates and grab their big ass spear, right? And you're know, <laughs> like, okay, well, th- this this is the state, right? The state is like yeah. fucking yeah. Jerry and his friend like Patroclus or whatever the fuck, you know, like forming forming a shield wall with the, like the shields they have at home, yeah. you know. But but th- you know, and, and that's the th- like. In 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 sort of like warrior democracies of that style, like there are there are sort there's like the Kasatria Republic, I think is the name of it. Um, there there are these sort of like they're like you know like there 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 are republics like this, or quote unquote republics like this that that, that exist in in various places in the world. Where you have these sort of like military classes that yeah. you know like do fifty plus one, but those people right the the enforcement mechanism is very is very very direct in a republic. 
the enforcement mechanism becomes autonomous, and also the decision-making apparatus becomes both. Both of them become autonomous from like the people, quote unquote, who are supposed to be making the decisions. And suddenly, you have the situation where, you know, okay, if you live in the U.S., right, it is very, very clear that there are lots of things that everyone supports that simply like are not is not like like it's not happening right like you know i mean you 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 could look at sort of like universal health care like i mean for example like, you know, another example that we could take that's i think for poignant right now is like there was a pretty recent study on like what percentage of the population in the u.s supports trans people getting like trans affirming health care it was like 70 percent and then you know right. and you, but, you, but you know you look at a fucking state by state basis right and it's like well we'll be talking about this more Sort of later, but yeah, you know, on a state by state basis, like, oh well, that's not fucking <laughs> happening, right? People are just making it illegal, and it's very easy to look at this and go, like, well, okay, so the 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 principle of fifty plus one is being violated, right? Like, this is not a democracy. Some, something else has happened. Mm-hmm. One sort of solution to this is to go back to you know, is is to very literally go back and and ask the question, who is the people? And and this is this is you know, in a lot of ways, what Occupy is doing, right? Like Occupy's answer to this is like we are the ninety nine percent, right? It's okay. So like there 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 is a thing that is claiming to be the like the demos in in democracy, which is the, yeah. you know Congress, right? But like okay, Congress trivially is not the people, right? It's at, <laughs> yeah, at yeah, best but... a section of them. It is definitionally not <laughs> yeah. in any in any yeah right. You know, and okay, yeah, so yeah. You, you have you have lots of versions of this. Like the the, the American one tends to be a lot of people sitting as square. You know, but like, 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 can, can actually convening a a something that's kind of like a democracy. But even, but you know, that's the other thing about this. Like, is is Occupy democracy right? Like, they don't have violence as like a political tool, really. I mean, this isn't to say that like there wasn't some weird shady shit that happens, but like, <laughs> you know, like they don't have the ability to sort of like coerce people into accepting like a fifty one percent decision that that yeah, people like yeah. genuinely can't live with, right? So, so they don't they don't really like. They, they, they in some in some sense in challenging democracy they create something that isn't really a democracy right they they create a sort of like elaborate consensus process and this is you know or like if if the Kratos part is I'm trying to think of a way I've been trying to think for like ten minutes about a way to phrase this but like if the if the strength and power is like is the people and is evenly distributed among the people as opposed to like, it's the state and like if some of this theoretical abstraction of the will of the majority of the people then that that leads to a consensus almost by definition right like like if yeah well like, i mean i think i think the, the the sort of breaking principle here is yeah. if you think that it is legitimate to use for a group of people to use violence to enforce something and at that point everyone is still armed then then you yeah. you, you you get a 50 plus 1 structure right right but if if you don't think it's legitimate to use violence to coerce people into sort of like doing whatever the thing is you want to enforce, yeah. then by definition you get some kind of consensus process. But you know we we have a system that every everyone like thinks that what's happening like you know in some sense like the, the ideological principle is that like you know everyone thinks that what's happening is is you have a fifty plus one system and that's where the, like the legitimacy of the system comes from because like you know we voted for these people. But also, it's so clearly not, and also, like, the police are so clearly just this sort of, like, roaming, like, bandit force that is, like, not even, like, remotely – like, it, 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 like yeah. 
they they technically draw legitimacy from the people, but like you know, okay, like what 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 happens if you try to convene an assembly of the people <laughs> in the U.S.? The answer is they beat the shit out of you with uh, sticks and then tear gas you and then like start shooting you. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you know, this this is sort of you know, like like this this is what Occupy proved, right? Which is like if if you challenge the sort of the claim of 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 the government to represent the people, right? Because like who 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 the fuck are these assholes? To like to be like a hey no like we 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 are the people we are sort of like the legitimate manifestation of the people if you want yeah. to do anything like you have to go through us well it's like okay so like how how did how did they get that how did they get that authority right and the answer is yeah. they did it they did it by staging an armed revolution yeah, that, yeah. and that, that that's what their that's what their actual yeah. legitimacy derives from yeah. right is they they want they won the armed revolution yeah and violently dispossessed people of their yeah. land before they did that like piggybacking off colonialism to do an armed revolution. Yeah, and, and so like, okay, but like, you know, their their legitimacy is incredibly tenuous, right? Like, this gives you this question of how do you determine like what you know? How does a democracy determine what the people are? And one one way that you can make a sort of counterclaim against a democracy is by assemb- like physically assembling a shit ton of people in a place and going like we are like physically we are the people and we are going to make decisions and yeah. you know that that can that can look like occupy with like a seven hour meeting about whether where we want to put plants right or it can look <laughs> and this is you know you get this a bit in occupy but like or it can, it can look like you know here are a hundred thousand people like they are going to fight they're going to just like throw shit at the police until the police run away and you know <laughs> that that is that 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 is a that is a thing that like we have seen in this country this this will be like another episode, but this 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 was a thing that happens in Mexico in 2006 in Oaxaca, where people basically ran out the police by literally hundreds of thousands of people, sh- like wait wait waking up to a bunch of police like a bunch of police just beating the shit out of like a bunch of striking teachers and then like picking up a brick and throwing it. You see it a little bit, oh, not really, but like in in like Podemos in Spain, if you're familiar with that, yeah. Like they, they kind of their attempt to have people determine their policy platform. It's not largely a successful one, but like, yeah. Well, I mean, interesting. Obama did that too. Oh, really? Yeah. This was the thing. Obama right. had this job. Like, one of what Obama's initial pitches was like he was gonna have. There's gonna be this like online thing where people could vote and like decide on policy things, and he immediately abandoned it. And Podemos also immediately like th- this is this is one of the things that yeah. like th- this is this is like one of the ways you try to like capture this kind of like. Yeah, because what 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 you're what you're really like when, when when riot police are like fighting like a bunch of people in the street, right? Like what what you're watching is 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 two kinds of democracy fighting with each other, right? You're 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 right. Wa- you're watching a sort of like like you're 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 watching the crowd, which is an you know a, a very very immediate like for like you know literal form of democracy, right? Yeah. Where you know the crowd makes a decision and people yeah. do things, fighting. Yeah. The police, who are like a very, you know, the like the the, the police are technically a, like a, a a part of a democratic system, right? But the police are just yeah, purely yeah. the sort of like like they're, they're, they're you know they 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 are the violence by which the people rule, and you you are watching yeah. you're watching these two things sort of like clash with each other, and you know, I mean, I I I, I think I think one of the the sort of like products of 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 the way that republicanism like specifically developed or like republicanism in the sense of like this is a republic not a democracy etc yeah, etc etc like small r. Like, yeah sm- like yeah small r but also in the sense of like okay so in- instead of you voting on things directly like 
you know, you vote for some asshole who yeah, like, like representative to democracy the police funding. Form. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. Like that that sort of like unmooring of 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 the means of violence from the people, which was, you know, which was is the essence of democracy, good or bad. Yeah. Right. And, and And I would also say, like, you know, that can go like. That that sort of like having having violence and democracy, like you know, violence and decision making being paired together, like that's not always a good thing. That can go really, really badly, right? Like you know, because like like for example, like a race riot, right? Like a, like a, a clan march, right? Is technic like is technically an expression of democracy, right? It is, you know, it is a group of people convening themselves as the people and then doing an action. And you know, and you, like I, I, this has been something I've been sort of been forced to think about a lot with the anti-trans laws which is that like trans people are like you know the most optimistic estimate you could like have is like maybe two and a half percent of the population if you assume there's a bunch of people who are trans and don't know that they're trans right like you know and and if if you were two and a half percent of the population in a in a 50 plus one system it is very easy for 51 like there is no physical way that you can have like if if fifty plus one percent of the population decides to kill you all, there's nothing you can do, right? Like there's there's yeah, no yeah. there's no it's amount like, of like voting that you can do that will make you not die, because that that's the sort of like yeah the tyranny of the majority or whatever like or like the, yeah uh, yeah. Have you are you familiar with like the argument against utilitarianism that like the greatest good for the greatest number or the greatest happiness for the greatest number? If you're looking to serve the greatest happiness for the greatest number, if like ten people get two units of happiness from beating one person to death with sticks. Yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> then, like the, she can't experience as much sadness as they experience happiness. Like it, yeah, know, yeah. democratic impulse in action. Yeah. And, and, and you know, like the, the, this is the thing that is, again, what we've talked about, like is, is normally brought up by like incredibly corrupt, corrupt the sort of vital elites who want to protect their status. But like, it is also, you know, and like the, the, this is part of the reason why, for example, the U S just fucking puts like immigrants in camps, right? Because they can't fucking vote. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they're they're not part of like, quote unquote, the people. Right. Like yep. there, there are large sections of the population who are just, you know, like booted from this entire process. Right. Um, this is an argument that William C. Anderson and Zoe Samudzi make in the book as black as resistance, which is that like, yeah, like black people like fucking are not part of this shit. Right. Like they're not a, like a constitutive like part of the people TM. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this uh, they, 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 they call this they call this the anarchism of blackness. Um which is this sort of like it's 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 a position of being like removed as like a legitimate sort of like subject in the state who can you know ex- exercise your like democratic rights or whatever the fuck it's like yeah okay like lots of people have never had this and you know this this even even in, even in this sort of like you know relatively egalitarian like you know like there 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 have been like parts of the US like especially the early U.S. right, you have your like sort of like New England Town Council, right? And it's like, well, what is what is your New England Town Council vote to do? It's like, well, it votes to send out the fucking militia to kill indigenous people, right? Yeah. Like, you know, even you you can you you even 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 when the U.S. has functioned as something that is closer to like a like democracy TM, where like the means of violence and the means of sort of decision making are are actually placed in direct directly in people's hands, right? Like that doesn't always go well, right. but yeah. You know, but like you know, we 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 have now developed a like, in, 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 we 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 developed a system that has like the worst of every single parts of of every single aspect of this. Right? We're like, okay, so we 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 have fifty plus one as the sort of like legitimating factor, 
But also, 50% of the population plus one does not actually vote for a thing. It is possible for, like, more than half of the population. It's, it's possible for a majority of the population to vote for a presidential candidate and you get a different one, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it, possible. Like, this, we've seen this, like, there's so many fucking elections have had this now. Like, two in my lifetime. Like, like and and also, also, we have, we, we, we have the other part of it, which is that we we also have like the the we we have the other democratic principle of like you should be able to enforce uh, a political opinion by violence. Yeah, we got that in space. Yep, <laughs> and you know, I guess 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 like guess guess who fucking gets to make that decision? It's not fifty plus one of you. Like, no. it's a bunch of assholes in suits and like six cops. Yeah, I think a good way to view the U.S. is like a bunch of landowners uh, made a system where land votes and people don't. Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, and then, and then you know, and then and then they went about making sure that like even if the land does vote for a thing, if it's not corn yeah, yeah, subsidies, yeah. it doesn't happen. Like no, seventy, yeah, yeah. seventy-five weird dudes in between your vote and anything actually happening. Yeah. Which is how you get like this kind of constitutional magic that the Trumpists are always trying to do because like it's not actually like that far from reality, right? There there are like 17 magic incantations that have to get set after you put your ballot in the box and then an old white dude's in charge again. Yeah, and, and but you know, I think like, you know, the, the US system is like it's stunningly bad. Like it's it's one of <laughs> it's like a it's a really dog shit like terribly written democratic <laughs> system. Like it is it is designed not to function. Like that 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 was actually the point yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like yes. a there's a king a thing that like you shouldn't have like the the, the the president is supposed to is supposed to be a king right like i think like if 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 you go back and read like what the balance of powers was supposed to be it was like they they're doing the roman thing of like you need like you you need to combine a king and oligarchy and a democracy and it's like well okay so we have like a fucking king who could just like kill people it's great it's great it's great but you know you know okay so the the i think i think the 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 broad total argument that that i want to make here is that what what we have been seeing over the last about 15 years, right, with the sort of movement of the squares, with the series of uprisings that we saw, I mean, you know, in 2020 in the U.S., but also like all over the world from about 2018 to, I mean, I, some, they're still, some of them are still going like yeah. now, right? You know, it, it, it's, 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 it's been a reaction to sort of this, right? It, 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 it's, it's been a reaction to democracy as a legitimating principle not matching like demo- like you know even 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 what the principle is supposed to be and then people going out into the streets and doing democracy and the sort of clash between like democracy in theory and democracy in action mostly has resulted in democracy in action winning because it it, it turns out the thing about republics is that they're really 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 good at creating like military apparatuses that are very hard to defeat by just purely fighting them yeah sadly yeah but, however, comma, sometimes they lose. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, as, 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 the, as the old IRA thing goes, they, they have to get lucky every time. We only have to get lucky once. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Keep collectively bargaining by riot. Yeah. What the fuck else are you going to do? You know, like... Uh, Vote? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vote, <laughs> like... like uh, like your life depends on it, kids. Uh, you can vote if you want to, right? Like uh, there, there are instances in which it might meaningfully reduce the cruelty of the state a little bit. In some places, sometimes, but yeah, it's not gonna 
it's not going to like take away the central fucking canard of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I do 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 democracy by rioting. That is our uh, uh, official legal position. This is mm-hmm. legally I'm got legally non-actionable, but also mm-hmm. legally actionable at the same time. This is called dialectics. <laughs> and yeah, this this is what it could happen here. Find us in the places. Uh, don't find us in the places. Mm-hmm. Read Yay. David Graeber. Yeah, do that. Re- read yeah. the Never Was a West. It's great. Nobody reads yeah, it. It's it's really people, good. People have been asking for a Graeber book because we keep talking about him. So yeah, read. I don't know, read There Never Was a West, uh, read Towards an Anarchist Anthropology. Um, bullshit Jobs is a good start if you've yeah. not read much. If you want to be the real gravehead and read something that fucking no one has read, go read uh, Towards an Anthropological Theory of Value. I ran into one of my colleagues at Supermarket the other day and we were talking about that. So you good can, book. You, no one yeah. has ever read it. Uh, it's, no. Uh, yeah, read more Graeber. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. 
Yeah, it, it, it could happen here. That's the podcast that you're listening to. It's a news podcast about shit falling apart. Uh, that's the only intro you're going to get because Garrison is right now in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, reporting on the continuing Stop Cop City protests. Uh, Garrison's done a number of scripted episodes covering these in detail over the last year and change. Uh, they're in the thick of it right now, so I'm just going to bring them and a friend on to talk about what has been happening this week. Yes. Uh, That's your cue. This, this, week, this week is a special week because this is the mm-hmm. fifth week of action that has happened here in Atlanta as a part of the Stop Cop City and Defend the Atlanta Forest Movement. This episode is going to be like a midweek update because this, this week of action is still very much ongoing. Uh, there's still yeah. many many days that that things can happen with, uh, but a lot a lot of a lot has already happened in in these in these first few days anyway. So we're gonna kind of do a, a quick a quick little update, and then a more comprehensive piece will be later down the line. But with me here to help uh, talk about what's 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 gone down so far is someone from the Atlanta Community Press Collective, uh, Clark. Hello, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks uh, for having me on. So thanks for being on. Yeah, we've we've been kind of we, we've been we've been kind of uh, teamed up the past few days here as as many, many, many things, both silly and serious have have taken mm-hmm. place across Atlanta. Yeah. Um, safety in numbers. Safety in numbers. Yeah. yeah, that yeah it's always be. nice to have friends when you're watching jackbooted thugs go fucking apeshit with all of their new toys. And I mean, I think that is part of the week of action idea is getting as many people here as possible and hopefully some of that makes makes some people uh uh more safe. Um, that's something that we'll probably talk more more in detail later when we have kind of hindsight. Uh, but I guess today let's let's just start on what's kind of happened so far chronologically. I guess starting on Saturday, we I I met you Saturday, uh, for a rally at Gresham Park. I, I think it's where we first met up this week. Yes, yeah, so we met at the rally at Gresham Park, which. Uh had about i would say an hour's worth of speeches uh before they kicked off a march uh down the bike path from gresham park to what uh the activists call wheelani people's park uh which is the site of the protest beforehand uh so the forest around it had been unoccupied since the raid uh in january that that saw the killing of tortuguita so this was the first sort of uh permanent return to the forest uh so we took a i don't know 40 minute march down uh the path and then landed in uh wheelani people's park they had one more little round of chance uh with a promise to defend the forest and then they they broke off and uh Everything was a it was a nice, really relaxing day. Yeah, it was it was a pretty positive start to the week of action. Um, people essentially retook Walani People's Park uh, and started to go into the forest once again. Uh, camp got set up in the forest. Um, lots of people from both in town and folks from out of town started started to camp in the woods again. Um, and then in the the hours after this small march, people started to prepare for the music festival, which was planned like a, like a few hundred feet away from Wolani People's Park, I guess, inside, uh, inside like a more like open field area. And music festival went off without a hitch the first day. It was pretty, pretty rad. 
Yeah, I think uh, there was about 500 people for 500 people that first night of the musical festival. Yeah. Uh, the, the vibes were great. Everyone was having a fun time. I think it went on until about 1 a.m. And uh, I, I don't think the first day could have gone better. I, I think it went on till about 4 a.m. <laughs> um, okay, well, I went to bed at 1 a.m. I, I did not go to bed at 1 a.m. <laughs> I, I was at the music festival quite, quite a bit longer. <laughs> I'm quite a bit older, and I think that was the reason I had to leave. Uh, yeah, so, Garrison yeah. doesn't understand things like uh, needing sleep yet. So give him another year or two before they hit that sweet, sweet wall. <laughs> so, so true. Mm-hmm. Then, I'm, then I'll have to find another teenager to go do journalism. <laughs> just, just every every like four or five years, you just find just, a new one. Yeah, just just keep re-upping like Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, so the, the the first the first day was uh, was pretty good. There was no no substantial police response that I saw. Um, police kind of left people alone in the forest. The march from Gresham Park was was fine, um, and people got to spend a night in the woods again, uh, which you know we ha- had had not had that many people in the woods in like months. Um, and I mean, this is this is it should be said like camping and a music festival, but it's like relatively high risk because people have gotten significant charges just for camping in the woods in the past. Yes. And the very recent past. Part, part, some, some of the warrants that, that have been issued that justify the uh, charges like domestic terrorism have included things such as sleeping in a hammock with someone else in the forest. And that's the reason why they're getting charged as a domestic terrorist. So, yeah, it is a music festival. People are camping. It's kind of chill. But also there's absolutely this kind of this just like this like a ever present kind of fear that despite what is being done, being pretty, pretty kind of like normal and not and not 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 in and of itself militant or radical. Still, the consequences from the state are kind of always, always looming. Which kind of leads us to Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which picks up exactly where we left off. Yes. So I, I got there around noon on Sunday. Same, uh, same. I think. And the first thing we see is a bouncy castle. Large, large bouncy <laughs> castle in front of the music festival. It has a big Stop Cop City banner. Um, massive, multicolored bouncy castle. Uh, people are having a pretty, pretty good time. Yeah, as soon as they finished setting up the bouncy castle, it was it was uh, filled and uh, everyone. Uh, I think there were about seventy five, hundred people just set up uh, on blankets around the I, stage. Initially, I think in, in in the next few hours, that definitely grew to be there being oh, yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people returning to the music festival for the second day. Um, I mean, I think the, the 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 march on Saturday was anywhere between like. I, I I saw estimates of anywhere between 500 to 1,000 people. Uh, music festival seems to be like over 500 people. Um, and then on the second day of, of the music festival, it slowly grew in size to, again, being hundreds and hundreds of people. And it's, yeah, it's, it started off just kind of continuing on with the music, continuing on with uh, people people having having nice times in the woods. I, I walked around the campsites and got, had conversations with people talking about all sorts of anarchy related things. And then they're slowly throughout the day. Um, I think that this was posted on social media as well. There was a plan for a rally at 5 PM to meet on part of uh, part of the field that the, that the music festival was also happening on. 
by the time that happened, people people met up. Uh, the group that that kind of uh, uh, converged was in a mix of black block, camo block. So like people like covered head to toe in various various camo print. <laughs> um, and they set off from from the RC field where the music festival was at. So they left. They they what they went down Boulder Crest Road to the section of the woods called the Power Line Cut. So to to understand what is going on here, you kind of have to understand some of the geography of the Wolani Forest. So we have like the the Wolani People's Park parking lot and that immediate kind of kind of campsite. This is this is like the the easternmost part, and then. There's the RC field, which is just like right, right next to that to, to the west, and then even west of that is Entrenchment Creek, and Entrenchment Creek kind of divides up this this uh, this this section of the forest, and then everything everything west of Entrenchment Creek is generally referred to as like the as the old Atlanta prison farm area, and the the power line cut is 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 pretty close to 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 the creek and. To, uh, that that is kind of where this 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 prison farm section uh, is, and this is this is an area of the woods that cops have been more rigorous about policing, more rigorous about surveilling, more rigorous about having kind of constant surveillance and people on the ground. It's, it's estimated that they're spending over forty thousand dollars a day running security <laughs> on this part on on the on this part of the woods. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so see, people... and for that amount of money, they could hire like more people than are on the police force if they just used Fiverr. You know, that, that's really that's really the tactic they ought to be embracing. And I, I think if they had used Fiverr, they might have had enough people to counter the protesters, to but to the, the, the overbloated police salaries, they only had like 20 people there. Yeah, they, they did not have many. So this group set down Boulder Crest. They, they, they marched up the power line cut. They, they laid out like tire, tire barricades in the street. Um, and then... Upon them marching, marching on the power line cut, uh, uh, after after they arrived near the near the near, near the police surveillance setup that we that we that we just mentioned, some of some of the equipment somehow burst into flames. Um, people have blamed like shoddy construction. People have said that you know sometimes equipment just does that. Um, <laughs> But yes, no. So people people set set a whole bunch of uh, police infrastructure on fire, set some construction equipment on fire that is being used to to destroy sections of the forest where they want to build Cop City. Um, police were repelled with stuff like rocks and fireworks. The the cops that were stationed there very quickly retreated. I think uh, lots lots of stuff was set on fire. There was the the surveillance tower was set on fire. A bulldozer was set on fire. Well, I mean, it's it's winter. People need fires to camp comfortably. I understand. <laughs> a UTV, that. A, a UTV was some kind of like like a like big like a uh, big like trailer like storage unit thing was set on fire. Yes, and the cops were very worried about that. They didn't know if there was flammable material inside that. You you wouldn't store flammable materials in an easily accessible area. Oh, <laughs> uh, we shut down an entire interstate because we did that uh, a few years ago. So. We would in in Atlanta. In Atlanta would all of Atlanta collectively. Um, so 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 this happened. Uh, a thermal chopper from a a, a a thermal police helicopter was was watching all of this. Um, after, and honestly, after, the footage is is pretty interesting. It is it, it is it is worth it is worth discussing how yeah. this type of how how this type of sur- sur- surveillance works. 
Um, and Almost I th- I the think- same uh, thermal cameras that are on the Bayraktar drones that Turkey makes, by the way. It's 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 pretty. Or a it's pretty bit of Foucault's boomerang. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 absolutely. No, it's 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 pretty. It's pretty frightening with their ability mm-hmm. to track into in, to track individual people. Um, I also think it's worth because there's video of the cops being pelted with stuff, including fireworks. I think it's worth noting that, like, while it is unpleasant to be pelted with the kind of stuff the cops were pelted with, you and I have both been pelted with numerous fireworks of similar size, and it is not yes. a serious threat to life and limb. No, no, there we we survive, yeah. but it's, it's modestly unpleasant. But the cops that were there uh, were not very happy about it. They put out calls for officer in need of support and for all available units in the greater Atlanta area to converge on the forest. Um, people who were who who marched to to this to the section of of the power line cut started to disperse throughout the woods, and I I was back by the road watching this from hundreds and hundreds of feet away because <laughs> I I did not need to go up there that would not have been helpful in any way, um, but no. as this as this was happening a whole bunch of uh, police cars zoomed by so I started following those cars I went back to the music festival um, I I I met up with with some with some uh, other uh, other media people that I was that I was uh, communicating with and then I got a text message saying that a cop showed up in the parking lot of the Walani People's Park with an AR15 I started making my way over and then as as I'm running across the music festival I see a whole bunch of police at the parking lot for the music festival itself at the at at, at the RC field so I don't I don't make my way over to the Walani People's Park parking lot where there's the AR15 because instead I see way way more police closer closer to where I am so I I stage there. Uh, minutes later, police start running into into the music festival. They start tackling seemingly anyone who's like by themselves and that they could like get their hands on. It, it didn't. It didn't seem incredibly yeah. targeted. Um, it's this is something that will kind of I'll pro, I'll probably like discuss in more detail once we have slight, slightly more hindsight. But a, a lot a lot of the arrests did not seem specifically targeted um in the bail hearings from just yesterday as of time of recording they said they were going after people who had mud on their clothing and like it 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 rained a day before the music festival incredible detective work (laughs) only only a true terrorist would have mud I think a month and a half ago, Ryan Millsap tore up the parking lot. So it rained the day before, and anyone who would walk through that parking lot or the trail system had to walk through mud. You're walking through mud. Also, people are just sitting on the dirt at the music festival. Like, so, yes. I mean, this might also include, like, useful advice for people in the future, because if the movie Predator was telling me the truth, and it's never lied to me yet, coating yourself entirely in mud makes thermal vision no longer function. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So police police started tackling people. It was it, it definitely they were going after people who were like by themselves. Um. And yeah, people with mud. Uh, the police alleged in their in their in their warrants that were read out at the bail hearing that they were going after people who had metal shields, and they said that almost almost everyone they arrested was arrested carrying a metal shield. Now here's a few funny notes about that. There was not a single metal shield <laughs> present at all. There were a few small plastic shields, not a single metal one. And in in looking through all of the footage of arrests, the footage that I have that's been sent to NLG, footage that other people have had, 
no one was arrested carrying a shield, let alone a metal one. Um, so a, a whole bunch of the, the reasoning for these arrests is, is incredibly suspect. Uh, police, so raided once, tackled, arrested like five people, carried them out. They raided again, and this is where they started launching tear gas into the forest. Um, I got gassed decently bad. Uh, it was not was not very fun. First time I've gotten tear gassed in years. Uh, old, old, old memories. Um, and during uh, this it's time, like a kiss from a dear friend. So <laughs> that, was, that was exactly what I was thinking. And I did not. I I brought gas masks to Atlanta, but I didn't bring them on the Sunday because it was a music festival. Because usually you don't bring gas masks to a music festival. Yeah. I mean, the thing about gas, the thing about tear gas and, and gas masks is that, like, when you're used to getting tear gassed, it's really easy to have them handy and get them on when, like, you're not used to being tear gassed. You're probably not going to bring it with you. Yeah. So uh, people got people. Some people in the forest got gassed pretty bad. Uh, I mean, the, the whole point was to sow confusion, make it so that people could not hide out in the woods. It was, it was to, it's to make people yeah. scatter, run away so that they can be tackled and arrested. Um, one person that was a National Lawyers Guild legal observer was arrested. Um, they're also a lawyer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, this, oh boy. This, this person was the only person arrested that I'm aware of that was released on bail. Um, everybody else yeah, is I'll being held. Yeah, I'll fucking bet. <laughs> everyone, everyone else is being held indefinitely. That actually includes, there was a second legal observer who was not wearing the hat. Uh, uh, so during the bail hearings yesterday, their lawyer uh, said that they were a legal observer, but because they weren't wearing the hat and because they were not local, they were not given bail. It was reported there was like around like 35 arrests the night of. Yes. Initially. So, uh, APD released a press release that said there were 35 detainees, detainees, which at the time they released it was a very interesting term because we thought 35 people had just been arrested and, and were on their way to jail. Yeah. But... Just uh, about 45 minutes after that, 12 of those 35 were released. So this was very curious. Um, th there is a lot of theories going on for what has happened. Um, I'm going to I'm just going to relay what I heard when I was listening to the bail hearings yesterday. So a defense lawyer for some of the people arrested said yesterday during the bail hearing that um, to his understanding, the 12 people that were detained but not arrested were people from Atlanta. And the 23 people who got arrested and charged were not from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And part of so what police could be doing here is basically, if you're from Atlanta, we'll, we will ID you, but we're not going to actually arrest and charge you, but we will arrest and charge you if you're from out of state, so this so they can continue this outside agitator narrative, so they can say, every single person arrested after this protest was from out of state. Um, the, 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 the cops and the media have done a lot of weird collusion regarding the events of Sunday night. Um, they've conflated the location of the arrests a lot. Police want to make this seem like they arrested people at a crime scene that like they, they arrested people as they were like torching construction equipment, which just isn't true. They arrested people almost seemingly at random at a music festival that was like hundreds and hundreds of feet away. Like it was, it is, mm -hmm. it is not an, it is not an easy walk from from the power line cut to the music festival because not only do you have to go through some like pretty pretty uh, harsh brush some woods um and like jump over a pretty large creek of uh, the alternatively you have to like walk down a road which nobody did so the police have done a, a police and 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 like 
local media, like large, like large corporate local media have, have tried to make it seem like that this, that this music festival thing is just like a red herring that it's, it's not, it's not important, but a lot of the people that, that were, that were, that were arrested seem, seem to be people that were just enjoying this music festival. So 23 of them, um, have been charged with domestic terrorism. Uh, most of those people are being held indefinitely for now. Uh, they're, they, the, the bail hearing is going to get appealed to the, to the superior court. We'll, we'll see if that changes anything. The judge said that they were not presented with any evidence that these people did anything wrong, but they still decided to not give them bail. Um, the, the judge, the, the, the reasoning for that was that the judge thought that people who did not have any local ties to the community could be a flight risk. And some people who did have local ties to the community, they said still were a threat to the community somehow, despite many of them not having any prior convictions, not, not having any prior arrests. It's it it seemed it seemed pretty suspect during 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 the during the bail hearing, but that was that was most of Sunday night. Um, eventually, police kind of surrounded and kettled the group of people that that was still still at the music festival hours after these arrests happened. They gave like a five minute dispersal warning, and then they gave a ten minute dispersal warning. Eventually, cops let most of the people who like gather who were gathered right in front of the stage leave. There was probably like fifty people at that point because. People throughout the night were, were trying to leave um, as as police were, you know, like raiding the forest. Some people were able to some people were just like let go and like were able to leave. Others were detained almost arbitrarily. It's 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 hard to say. So that that was the first two days of the week of action. And it felt like a week. What happened the next day? <sighs> so. Yeah, the nonviolent uh, direct actions, and then the Monday, Monday, the events. Oh no, Monday. Yeah, because that was only so, that was only the second. <laughs> no, day. Monday is the city council meeting that we were in for yes, eight hours. Yes, yes. So Monday there was uh, there was an interfaith coalition of clergy that uh, that had held a press conference outside of city hall, um, basically like endorsing the stop cop city movement or like. Uh, Clark, how how would you describe what 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 happened? So there were a couple of elements to the clergy. Um, we'll just call it an action. Uh, the first thing was uh, they presented a letter with over two hundred uh, other clergy members who had signed that, uh, denouncing Cop City, calling for an independent investigation into the killing of Tortuguita, and calling for an independent investigation into the use of domestic terrorism charges to chill free speech. Uh, and then during that press conference, uh, Miko Shaban uh, called for land back and called for land back of in the Wilani forest uh, to the Muscogee people to stored in um, coordination with the legacy black residents of the area. Yeah. So they, they were both like uh talking about the need to stop cop city, but also provi providing a plan on how this land could be used. This, this land that is, that is leased by the city. It is on DeKalb County. After this press conference, some of these people from the coalition uh, gave public comment during the city council. And that was most of the events on Monday that I can recall. Oh, there was the, there was the Purim in the forest that night. And that was that was very enjoyable. That was kind of the first time people like tried to go back into the forest since since the Sunday night raid. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I think that started to slowly boost morale again. Yeah. And I think we should talk about also after the raid, there are a few um, really unique things that happened. There were a lot of people who didn't have housing and they were housed by local activists. Um, There was the bus network was set up to transport people from the site where everyone was getting arrested to somewhere safe. Uh, They moved breakfast off site to a different location. So there was a lot of work done in, in, in continuing the week of action and providing some sort of infrastructure for all of these people who had come into town and didn't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. Once again, the resiliency on display was impressive and people's ability to adapt to the ever evolving situation was was tested and people adapted pretty well. Um, Tuesday, there was there was starting to be like typical nonviolent direct actions happening throughout to downtown. A whole bunch of banner drops happened around highways and interstates around Atlanta. People were uh detained for that. yes <laughs> uh, uh, three people were briefly detained at the site of 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 a banner drop um but throughout throughout the day there was people handing out letters to people to folks like the uh the ceo of norfolk southern norfolk southern uh alan shaw and then similar similar types of like nonviolent direct action were happening uh a small a small march was led from woodruff park to AT&T and Georgia Pacific. Um, there was like maybe maybe 50. I think 50 is an accurate number. 50 and... people gathered to march. Well, there were 50 marchers gathered. And then like 120 police officers in the in the uh, in the surrounding area. Massive Jesus. massive police presence. Police caused a huge a huge disruption to 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 downtown. Um, that, that's something we've seen kind of ever since the Sunday raid, the police have been incredibly heavy handed in their response to every single thing, whether that be people handing out flyers or whether that be, you know, uh, you know, people at, people at, at, at at a music festival, um, a whole, a whole bunch of police were mobilized Tuesday night near the forest, like a a hundred, again, like 120 cops, at least three or four different agencies, uh, bearcats, uh, helicopters, uh, I think there, it's 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 unclear what they were doing. Um, this is something that we might we might speculate further on once we have hindsight. When I when I put together my my kind of my kind of a more more intense deep dive, and then uh, then today the the thing that me and Clark just got back from. Uh, how do you want to explain today's today's events? So today was a lot of leaflet handing out yeah. and marching for it was a smaller group than the uh march yesterday i would only say like, there was like, like 20 a, 25 people yeah like it, it started off being like only only about like a dozen um and it's it, it slowly grew to like maybe like two or three dozen but yeah small 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 group of people yeah small group of people and when they met at noon they they met and they broke into three different groups yeah uh, and so the group that we followed was just uh they walked a little northward and started passing out flyers at the petrie center marta station they went to all three entrances and each uh group warranted its own police uh surveillance Mass- unit <laughs> massive police surveillance unit it was following everybody around there was there was a SWAT vehicle parked right right outside uh, where these people were handing out flyers. Um, it was it, there was there was like fifty to a hundred cops flanking people on like 
from from like from like different sides. Uh, eventually, all the all of the smaller groups that kind of branched off converged again, and police then gave a dispersal warning to people who were standing on the sidewalk on a sidewalk outside of a Hard Rock Cafe, <laughs> who were handing out flyers. Okay, well. They, I mean, look, were, in that case, they may have been protecting people because you want you want to get folks as far away from the Hard Rock Cafe as possible. <laughs> Garrison someone, really someone wanted to go to the Hard there, Rock. And that's a real and dangerous. I was I was campaigning for all of the press gathered to meet afterwards at the Hard Rock Cafe. It was no, between the no, Hard the Rock Hooters guys and... on that one. So, so Garrison, yeah. I watched you at the Rainforest Cafe. You barely made it through Look, that dessert. That the was Hard different. Rock Cafe that was is different. even worse. That that was different. I was, I I did I did get food poisoning from that Rainforest Cafe. I will mm-hmm. I will continue to claim. And, and I woke up with a headache for another an inexplicable reason. Not because you were carrying around a bottle of bourbon throughout. <laughs> throughout Las Vegas. Bourbon and a THC when in Vegas. yogurt or a milkshake or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So so cops gave a dispersal warning to people who were not not in fact blocking a sidewalk, were simply handing out flyers. You, people were still walking everywhere. Um so they basically moved to a different section of the of the sidewalk mm-hmm. and cops kind of left them alone. Um nearby a group of indigenous activists from the Indian Collective, I believe is what it's called. Uh it's actually Muscogee Nation. The Muscogee Nation uh went went to a a meeting that the mayor of Atlanta, Andre Dickens, was having nearby. Uh Clark, I think you know slightly more about what happened here than I do. Yeah, so several of the indigenous activists uh entered so where he was having this meeting uh is a is a mall. Great. Uh, <laughs> In, in, in true Atlanta fashion. Um, so they entered the mall and they they found where he was in the building. And uh, so Miko Colonel Shabon delivered a letter essentially evicting the city of Atlanta from the Wilani Forest. Uh, so they got in without the police noticing. Um, and then the moment they got out, a... Large squad of police swarmed in. Mobilized. They were they were not happy how close people got to the mayor. So at this point, we don't know what the full reaction of that's going to be. We do know that the mayor ran away from accepting the letter, and then one of (laughs) I believe they handed it to one of the mayors. A mayor (laughs) running. (laughs) There there are few few more beautiful sights than a mayor running away. No. More mayors need to spend time fleeing from their peoples. So, like, I think this this episode comes out. I think like th- like late Thursday night, Friday morning, um, Thursday afternoon. There, so like we are we are recording this Wednesday. There's plans for Thursday. There's gonna be there's gonna be a large march at six p.m. I believe there's gonna be a youth rally at Saturday, and then on on Sunday morning, um, uh, Manuel Tehran, uh, Tortuguita's family, is holding a memorial for Tort in the Wolani Forest. Um, where I, it, I've been told that uh, they're going to spread towards ashes inside the woods. And that is kind of the last thing that's going to happen. Um, and so those are the things that have, have not, not, not yet took place. Um, so th- th- but we've, we've explained in, in, pretty, in, pre- in pretty excruciating detail some, of, some mm-hmm. of what's happened so far. So yeah, that's that kind of the current, current state of on the ground at the week of action. Um, I guess, Robert, do, do, do you have any questions for uh, Clark as someone who's kind of been on the ground in Atlanta for years covering <laughs> Stop Cop City? Yeah. 
I mean, I'm curious what over the last few weeks, like you've you've had some direct clashes with the police that have ended in a variety of ways. Broadly speaking, is there anything that you're you're kind of leaning towards this doesn't work? And is there anything you're kind of leaning towards this seems to work really well? So there is something to be said for uh, the more aggressive actions. And I, I think they serve their purpose. And there was definitely something to be said for the forest occupation. Um, it, it continued the movement until there was a groundswell of support. Uh, so at this point, I think the the actions have sort of switched gear into more nonviolent direct actions as we're seeing this week. And I think that those actions will, will continue. I'm, I'm sure the anarchist contingent will continue to do uh, some other more aggressive, shall we say, direct actions. Yeah. And, and, and all of these work. Uh, we, we have a large swath of different uh, avenues of, of engagement that the movement is, has developed. And each of them has their place. And if they're used in the proper place, they are used to great effect. I think one kind of change that has happened, we've seen a we've seen a bit of a decrease in the types of like nighttime sabotage, like the the sort of like attack and disappear tactics that was was really popular in like the early days of the occupation uh, of of like of of like the forced occupation of, of of people living in living and and camping out in in the woods. Um, and you know the because like the last two much more like militant actions were done during the daytime during like large rallies there was there was the protest on saturday after tortuguita was killed where a cop car was torched then there was this then there was this protest on on sunday night um that people that people marched people marched to the to the power line cut and then the police started doing repression at the music festival um but like those things were happening like during like but before the sun was setting um so i think that 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 is one interesting change i feel like some people are definitely thinking about this especially because there's been 23 people arrested during this week of action and they're being held in jail uh and we have no idea when they're gonna when they're going to be able to have the option of getting out so i think this is something this is something that people are thinking about in terms of how they are how they are doing direct action and how how their involvement in direct action will affect people who did not participate, like with people at the, people at the music festival mm-hmm. who who were not who were not present at the power line cut uh, uh, direct action, and how some of those people are undoubtedly now facing like punishment from from the state. Um, so I feel like that there is definitely going to be some discussion about that. I've 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 seen discussion about this threat in in the city um but i mean the, the week of action is still is still ongoing it is it is only wednesday it feels like it's been a month um but it's only mm-hmm. been like three or four days uh but i mean it's people people are in this for the long haul um we're, we're starting to see more solidarity from from groups that are less militant like with the interfaith coalition right like you're not I don't think any of like the priests, the priests or the clergy were there throwing Molotov cocktails um, at the at the surveillance tower. Yet the very next day, they're standing outside of City Hall and demanding the same things that the people throwing Molotovs are are demanding. Um, And it should be noted that they didn't denounce. No, that it is it is solidarity across the movement. Absolutely. 
they talked about how them as clergy, uh, you know, and uh, the, the in in the history of Abrahamic religions, how many how many people associated and are the figureheads of of such religions have been killed by the state, and how often often these religions have been in opposition to the state during during their formative years. Um, and they, they, I don't they, know. I just, I just can't think of any prominent uh, uh, Christian figures or, or Jewish figures who were who were murdered by the state. That's just not nothing's coming up right none. now. Zero. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I grew up Christian, and I can't really remember anyone. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that is that is that is the week of action so far. Uh, cool. There will there will certainly be 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 a more uh, a more detailed deep dive with like analysis and like, you know, a, a narrative through line in the coming weeks as we're actually able to like look back on what has happened. Of um, interviews with more people who are who are like actually involved, interviews with like organizers, protesters, forest defenders. Um, but pe- d- despite the massive amount of repression that we've seen on Sunday, the, the increasingly like heavy handed response police have had to both direct action that, in- that includes property destruction and nonviolent direct action, uh, d- d- despite all that, people are still continuing to be in the woods. They are not letting it scare them away. Uh, the woods are still a place that the people are able to like exist in. Uh, they they are still yeah. able to to live live together in the woods, stay in the woods. the The cops don't like being in the woods. <laughs> no, there's a real fear. The, the, That's the why co- they're trying to tear them down. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the the cops are the cops are still very much scared of the woods. Um, and and uh, people have 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 not have not let the the violence shown by police scare them away mm. from from wanting to stay in the forest. So that is that is something that continued every day. There's been like guided tours throughout the forest, showing off the different different types of plants, the different sections of the woods, different different old campsites that people have slept at. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been pretty nice to see with the with just the incredible level of resilience well i know that that i i am and i'm sure many people are kind of watching this from a distance and uh very uh very happy to see that folks are continuing to adapt and endure uh and and take punches it's unfortunate that the punches keep coming but the ability of the community to take those hits and continue iterating and adapting um, remains tremendously impressive. Um, I think kind of the note that makes most sense to end on is to say that this is still a winnable fight. Absolutely. And that is a sentiment that literally everyone on the ground shares. Like we are at a point where like people keep saying like at this point they have to win. Like, like there, there is no other option than winning. Um, and people have the ability to win this. This is a winnable fight. Um, and that is, that is something that people continue, continue to talk about. And that, that is why people are fighting so hard. That's why people are, are, are risking getting these ridiculous charges because they know that this fight is both worth it. And they know this fight is winnable. Like these, these are these, the actions and the risks that people are, the actions and the risks that people are taking are not for nothing. Like they, they know that it is impactful and there is a very good chance that this, this will lead to victory and will lead to the forest being preserved, to being protected and being able to continue, continue to grow. It does have a feeling of inevitability that 
they will win. That that we we will win. I don't know which the appropriate yeah. way to say that is as a journalist, but the the feeling is that that cop city will not be built, and that is something that's shared, I think, by all of the activists in in the city. And I guess the the, the last thing I'll I'll say is uh. Atlanta Solidarity Fund. You, sh- if you, if you've been listening to any of our coverage, you should already know what it is. You, you can find the Solidarity Fund at atlsolidarity.org. You can donate there to help the forest defenders and you know and anyone who was who was arrested in relation to this uh, with with legal expenses, lawyers, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well. Um, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, and we'll have more from you, uh, Garrison and more from Atlanta soon. Uh, until next time, everybody, uh, keep an eye on shit. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.